Tell me what you dream. He was scared, even then, but he had sworn to trust them, and the Stark of Winterfell keeps his sworn word. There's different kinds, he said slowly. There's the wolf dreams. Those aren't so bad as the others. I run and hunt and kill squirrels. And there's dreams where the crow comes and tells me to fly. Sometimes the tree is in those dreams, too, calling my name. That frightens me. But the worst dreams are when I fall. He looked down into the yard, feeling miserable. I never used to fall before. When I climbed, I went every place, up on the roofs and along the walls. I used to feed the crows in the burned tower. Mother was afraid that I would fall, but I knew I never would. Only I did. And now when I sleep, I fall all the time. A Song of Ice and Fire is a marriage of fantasy and literature as well as ice and fire. And the interplay between those two is perhaps reflected in dreams more so than anywhere else. Since George loves to blur that line between fantasy and reality, dreams are like the perfect crossover. Because, you know, even to us in the real world, dreams are mysterious and confusing and and often very personal. I'm sure some of you out there, when reading about a character having nightmares, maybe you feel some kind of connection to that. Or, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe when reading about their good dreams, you have some connection to that. Actually, there's probably not too much of that going on, because during the research for this episode, we discovered, unsurprisingly, there aren't a lot of good dreams in A Song of Ice and Fire, and the ones that there are are pretty quick. (laughs) Now, dreams of the future, they're very common in fantasy, you know, whether they're prophecies or something like that. They're basically some sort of vivid prediction of the future that's just not possible in a real-world setting. Dreams of the past, likewise, are a common literary theme, often revolving around, say mistakes of long ago that still haunt the dreamer now or of roads not traveled the what ifs you know it's kind of an endless and unresolvable series of possibilities Mm -hmm. there what if that what if i did this what if i hadn't done that the human heart in conflict with itself that's what that all boils down to now dreams as a story element are a microcosm of george r R. martin's success and skill they're a hinge of the world to borrow his own term but the writing world a hinge of the writing world in his case Mm -hmm. These are two tropes that are individually quite familiar, uh, but completely unfamiliar when blended A Song of Ice and Fire style, George R. R. Martin style. Mm -hmm. He uses dreams that are straight-up ambiguous fantasy. There's no two ways about it. But then a few pages later, he'll hit you with a literary dream, something Mm -hmm. tormented by their past, someone tormented by their past. Or he'll do it in one quote, like he did in that opening quote, which is a great one. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's a perfect quote. It's a great one to start this episode with. It shows you... It gives a couple of types of dreams, and it, they're even in the right order. And this is something we really want to get at in this episode. He Brand describes the dreams in the order that they bother him. The least troubling first, which is the wolf dreams. Yeah. And then there are the tree dreams, which is the Winterfell Werewood and the Three-Eyed Crow, telling him to fly. Now, these are fantasy dreams. They're potent, and they define Bran's arc, and they frighten him, which fits because Bran's story is arguably the creepiest of them all. <laughs> But the dreams that he has of falling are worse, so let that sink in for a second. He has these bizarre and terrifying magical dreams revealing terrible truths about himself and the world. Dreams that, according to a man that he trusts quite a lot, which is Maester Lewin, are not truly magical. But he says the worst dreams are when he falls. (laughs) I mean, it does make sense, even as hard as that is maybe to kind of fit into a real-world paradigm. The Fallen crippled him. You know, the magic stuff, that's creepy. It's out there. It's like, wow, I didn't know this is really the world I was living in. But, you know, being crippled, that's that's rough. This shows George R. R. Martin's dedication to upholding the human story elements above the supernatural story elements 
even when the latter is overwhelming. And I love that about the series. The fantasy is there, but it's the characters that really matter the most. And that's a big part of why taking a close look at these dreams is so important. And that was also part of the conundrum in creating this episode. We went through a lot of approaches. This was probably the hardest episode we've ever made. <laughs> and that's saying something. And I'm not saying like hard as in when we like sweated and blood, you know, like hauling a boulder up a hill. You know, not that kind of hard. Just challenging and like, how do we approach this topic? I Wait. You're telling me I didn't have to pull that boulder up that hill? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that didn't that wasn't necessary after all. Yeah. Now, honestly, at first this was supposed to be called The Oracles of a Song of Ice and Fire. That was the original intent mm -hmm. with this. In fact, it was a topic voted on by our Patreon voters, but it became too big. <laughs> it was just a, a, focusing on characters that j just foreshadow things. Well, uh -huh. It wasn't just that it was too big, it was that it was leaving some things out. You know, just foreshadowing leaves out these interesting human element story things that, mm -hmm. that we really want to get at, which is, you know, really important. It's a part of what A Song of Ice and Fire is. So we didn't want to leave that out. And, hey, you know, like I said, that would have made it too big while leaving things out. But, hey, <laughs> that's what this episode is anyway. <laughs> that's still where we ended up. It's still a big episode. And the nature of the topic means we can't cover all of it. But... That's just the way it goes. Yeah, you'll see this for yourself as you uh, see all of the quotes that we included from <laughs> Bran and others. There's a lot packed into each one of those. Yeah, and frankly, that's another reason why we had to change tactic from our initial approach to this topic. Yeah, so hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros Podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Right, so as I mentioned, this was a Patreon voters episode. The, the, the topic was picked back in May, so... <laughs> I have no excuses. Normally, we should only take a couple of months on an episode that's voted on. It's the first time it's taken this long. Like I said, it presented some challenges we didn't see coming. So my promise is to do a better job not letting uh, these traps catch us off guard in the future <laughs> and to not pick topics that take so long to do. Or at least sure. figure out how to break them down. Yeah, sure. I've made that promise before. So I won't, I'll, I'll promise to try harder. I won't promise to do it because uh, then I would be lying. <laughs> so thanks to all the people who voted for this episode, um, as well as some of our uh, particular standout patrons, such as Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' First Sword, and Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, and Rider of Mazala Cartho, the White Dragon with green wings, horns, scales, and talons, mm -hmm. as you can see. Art of Ed Shear here, making Mazla Cartho come to life. Now, this episode does have some mild Winds of Winter spoilers. We wanted to include some dreams from those chapters. Like I said, they're pretty mild, but if you're spoiler-reverse, sorry, there's going to be a few things. You'll see them coming. We'll mention them before we get into them, so you can maybe skip past those parts. But, yeah, um, mild spoilers, but they are in here. <laughs> so, for this episode, like I said, we're focusing on dreams, particularly the magic ones, but not nearly just those. Uh, the magic ones were focused on to get at the source of those things. That's why, uh, what's one of the things we're after here is to identify why these dreams happen. Mm -hmm. And by identifying the non-magical ones, it helps make that distinction, which are magical, which are not. And that'll help you when you get to Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring, you'll see some of these patterns that we've discovered and you'll get an idea when you're reading these dreams for the first time, you'll already be ahead of the game. You'll, you'll have some sense of maybe what's happening that maybe the average reader won't have. So what's what we're really tr after here? We're trying to make you all smarter than all the other readers out there. That's it. We're all just trying to pump ourselves up. Yeah, no. no I'm just kidding. 
Okay, so we're not after the what in these dreams. In other mm -hmm. words, we're not after what the dreams mean. We're not after interpreting the dreams. We're going to do some of that because it's hard to not have to do that a little bit along the way. You know, we want to offer our opinions here and there. But we're more interested in the who, the character having the dream, the where, where they're having the dream, where the dream takes them, etc. The why, that's a big part of this, like whether it's a tree dream, a wolf dream, whether there's a werewood stump involved or dream wine or anything. And then there's the how and the when, that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we are going to do is analyze where, where all of these various kinds of dreams come from. The triggers and the supernatural elements within them or lack thereof. But fear not, those of you who did want us to analyze the dreams themselves, we will be doing a discussion roundtable episode as a companion to this one. That's right. We'll be giving out the details of that um, in the d details and look at the video description or in the podcast uh, description for the dates for that. Um, it'll be another Q&A episode. And we're pretty sure we're going to not do this one live. We're going to take the questions ahead of time and prepare them a little more mm -hmm. because these things take a little more analysis. Mm -hmm. So we're also down the line going to kind of round it out since we just said this topic was too big. Mm -hmm. uh, we are going to cover some of the stuff that, that wasn't covered, like the visions and prophecy stuff that was left out of this. We're going to t cover that at another time and we're going to have a similar kind of focus getting at the where the power to have visions and prophecies come from. And the methods of interpretation, because we've all seen, like, why does Melisandre get so many things mm -hmm. wrong while Makoro gets them right? Those are some kind of things mm -hmm. we wanted to talk about. And as you can see, trying to cover that and dreams in one episode, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> even, <laughs> doing all that in one episode, I should know better. Anyway, so let's first, let's get ourselves situated here. Let's explain what we mean by dream, because it's a loaded word. People use the word dream when they don't mean dream. And dream isn't simply a vision Although visions can happen during dreams, mm -hmm. so let's let's we'll have a lot of those yeah, too. Yes. So let's keep going. Yes. So we're not going to be analyzing wishes or daydreams. So None an of example that. of this would be that Robert Baratheon claimed to kill Rhaegar every night in his dreams. Does he really dream of it that frequently, or is it more of a daydream thing? His way of expressing how much those memories have stuck with him. Yeah, that's another issue with the word dream. It by itself is just very vague. But yeah. yeah, I would guess that Robert is exaggerating. Yeah. But recurring dreams are a completely real thing, and he seems to feel a small measure of satisfaction in the idea of killing Rhaegar over and over. I think that a part of him likes the dream. And while most of the dreams that we're going to deal with today are the unwished-for kind, people do dream of things that they want to see. Very true. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's what the, the equivalent good dream here is. Oh, here's another one. Sansa Four, A Game of Thrones. That night, Sansa dreamt of Joffrey on the throne, with herself seated beside him in a gown of woven gold. She had a crown on her head, and everyone she had ever known came before her to bend the knee and say their courtesies. Yeah, see, that's about as close as we can get to a good dream. That of Sansa, and then Robert killing Rhaegar over and over. These are, good, these are the good... That's what passes for a good dream. Now, the vast majority of all Song of Ice and Fire dreams are not the kind anyone would want to have. They're all... I mean, this is a dark topic. But if you love Song of Ice and Fire, you're not surprised by that, are you? Dark no. themes are pretty standard fare, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, definitely. But it is interesting. Most of the topics that we discuss don't have a direct parallel to the real world. None of you out there are troubled by real-life dragons. Probably. Probably. <laughs> probably. Uh, or nine-year-long winters. Probably. Uh, but nightmares. I Most of us have had a nightmare, too. Not yeah. all of us, though, but most. That said, dreams in the Song of Ice and Fire are 
really different from real world dreams. We don't go around attributing our dreams to the supernatural or believing that they will all come true. Well, Probably. some people do. Some people do. <laughs> some people do. Yes. Yeah. But it's different in a fantasy setting. Where they're definitely right. <laughs> it, well, they could be definitely Maybe right. Maybe yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Sansa 3, Game of Thrones. I had a dream that Joffrey would be the one to take the White Heart, she said. It had been more of a wish, actually. But it sounded better to call it a dream. Everyone knew that dreams were prophetic. From the mouth of babes. Sounds like the Melisandre school of thought there, though, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Spin something non-magical into something magical, and all of a sudden it becomes credible. Mm -hmm. Happens a lot in the real world, right? A lot of people talk of dreams that God sent them. <laughs> you know, cheesy TV preachers love to say that kind of thing, but it's nothing new. It didn't start with TV. <laughs> people have been attributing their dreams to higher powers since long before recorded history. Yeah. Now, that's yet another type of dream-related ambiguity that we have to remember to watch out for. Just because someone calls it a dream doesn't mean that it really was one. There is just too much incentive to lie. I would say that Sansa is far less naive at this point in the story than she was at the start. However, that line does come near the start, and despite uh, her naivete, Sansa understands that in her world, dreams are taken seriously, and this belief can be manipulated. Very true, very true. So we're going to define dreams in the simplest way possible and say it doesn't mm -hmm. count if the character isn't asleep. <laughs> Being knocked out counts. There are a few coma dreams, Bran, for us to get into along with the fever-induced ones. Mm -hmm. There are also druggy dreams, dream wine, milk of the poppy, shade of the evening, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and natural causes like trauma, grief, and guilt. Right, and a lot of times multiple things are going on at once. And there's another caveat here, which is that we don't always know whether something we hear from a character is something they saw in a dream or not, right? Like Patchface. He says a lot of foreshadowy things that are really, really creepy. Now, but we don't know when they're popping into his head. Is it right then in that moment? Is he just saying things then? Or is he dreaming those things and relating them later? And the dude's crazy. It's hard. To, it's hard to know. We don't have a patch face point of view in fact that's if you were to make a list of characters that you are least likely to get a point of view from he would be in the upper echelons of that list patch face, not going to get a point of view yes i would agree uh, <laughs> part of the fun will be figuring some of these things out dreams are by definition uncertain and fleeting but we're going to shed some light on them with that goal in mind, we've come up with some categories to simplify things a little bit. Yeah, we have to think of these categories as fairly arbitrary, but it needs to be done because research for this episode showed far more types of dreams than we imagined. <laughs> and I felt like Han Solo before starting it because I can imagine quite a lot. <laughs> but smugglers and podcasters alike underestimated the scope. Yeah. So we're breaking down dreams in two ways, timeline and origin. Now, by timeline, it's pretty obvious we're referring to whether the dream tells us of the past, present, or future. By origin, we mean things like fear dreams, dragon dreams, wolf dreams, green dreams, so on and so forth. There's so many. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> now, several of those are supernatural in origin, but fever dreams are certainly not, for example. And we're also going to deal a lot with how these dreams affect the dreamer. Yeah, we settled on timelines as a central category because they're the easiest to get a handle on. And, I mean, easiest doesn't mean easy. Supernatural sources can be hard to pinpoint. States of mind can be hard to account for. And we have George R. R. Martin's intent as a storyteller to contend with as well. But it's almost never ambiguous whether a dream we're seeing is of past, present, or future. Almost. Yeah, right? yeah almost. That's, yeah. Yeah, that almost is a key word there. As you're going to see, dreams sometimes do show past, present, and future, or at least two of the three. Still, it's almost always clear which is which. Almost is the key word there <laughs> as well, but the uncertainty is part of the fun, and the exceptions keep us on our toes. Yeah. So, let's quote, 
quoth quaith. <laughs> quoth quaith. Let's quote quaith for the zillionth time and move forward by going back. Part one, dreams of the past. Eddard 13. He was walking through the crypts beneath Winterfell, as he had walked a thousand times before. The kings of winter watched him pass with eyes of ice, and the direwolves at their feet turned their great stone heads and snarled. Last of all, he came to the tomb where his father slept, with Brandon and Lyanna beside him. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses, and her eyes wept blood. Eddard Stark jerked upright, his heart racing, the blankets tangled around him. In general, this category seems to be the least magical, the least fantastical. Though those kings of winter with the eyes of ice make you think, don't they? <laughs> the lighter magic elements make the few stand out even more, though. That's one way to, to differentiate things. And all dreams of the past are critical for understanding the characters who have them, especially point-of-view characters yeah, and so those are, the, yeah. Yeah. those are the ones that we're going to focus on in general because they're the clearest. It's not secondhand with the POVs. No one is interpreting a dream and telling it to us at later. It's not a game of telephone or Raven, I guess. In this case. <laughs> Tell uh, Raven. Yeah, uh, we see we see Ned dream that old dream and others firsthand. Right, and that's huge. We'll cover lots of the secondhand variety too. They're, they have a lot to offer as well, but this is an important distinction to make. Dreams by nature are fleeting and hazy, but the ones we're witness to are lesser in that regard. They're less fleeting, less hazy, because we see them written out, right? So let's look to the wolves at night, which probably makes you think of wolf dreams, <laughs> but those are dreams of the present coming up later in this episode. Yes, Right. Most of the POVs early on are Starks, and they are the wolves that we're referring to. <laughs> Ned's dreams remain among the most important in all of the books, and they appear to be entirely unmagical. They include all of those literary dream themes that we mentioned, and they're awesome. Meanwhile, his children, at various points, begin to have 100% magical wolf dreams. In Bran's case, not to say there's no conflict in him... But he's a young boy. I mean, his thoughts are not as complex as his father's, and you don't build up a lifetime of memories <laughs> by age seven. <laughs> so the high magic elements really take center stage in his chapters. Yes, yeah, which is a different kind of awesome. Right. <laughs> in between the two extremes, torn between the two worlds, belonging to both categories, and neither is Jon Snow. Yep. <laughs> the kid who is most certainly Stark plus Targaryen, Ice plus Fire, has dreams that are a bit harder to categorize. <laughs> Shocking, huh? He'll be popping up all over this episode. Well, his dreams will be, anyway. <laughs> his first dreams are of a subject that, of course, needs to be dealt with as readers still in the underdectory phase. Like, when we're reading the early chapters, we're still being introduced to these characters. So everyone really needed this basic business of getting us centered on what the story is about, who these characters are. But basic doesn't mean simple. It doesn't mean our man Gurm can't still give us a setup with a lot to think about. John Three, A Game of Thrones. He knew nothing of his mother. Eddard Stark would not talk of her. Yet he dreamt of her at times, so often that he could almost see her face. In his dreams, she was beautiful and high-born, and her eyes were kind. So there you go. Early on, John dreams of his mother in a vague sense. He pictures her as high-born, which... I think he, that might be to sell us on the idea that she's a Shardane, because that name's tossed around a bit in those early chapters around the same time. John, of course, knows nothing 
of hmm. this or of any of the various <laughs> things we hear about his mother. <laughs> Later, we hear that his mother was a lowborn girl named Willa. But neither are likely to be true, yeah. of course. Yes, and of course, the vast majority of us believe that his mother is Lyanna Stark, and she is highborn. So he was right. <laughs> but it begs the question: Was John seeing what he wanted to see in this dream, or was he seeing the truth? Yeah, was he picturing her kind of accurately? Did he? You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to mm. say for sure. Likewise, Ned's first dreams are more basic, but still interesting. He dreams of snow. Lowercase s in this case, <laughs> not like Melisandre. It could portend difficulty or the obvious onset of winter. Call back to the words of House Stark. I mean, that's what I thought at the time. But in retrospect, something else occurred to me, which is that it may be a hint of Ned's own death. I see it like this. He had many key dreams of the past, but no dreams of the future. Maybe because he didn't have a future. That's harsh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's Ned's arc in general, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Vital. Yeah. And tragic, yep, right? Yep. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So let's look at his most famous dream of all, one of the most important in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, this dream itself gets all the attention, which makes sense because it's also because of, you know, everything that's going on. But it's also kind of too bad because there's a lot else going on. Each of the characters at the Tower of Joy have what would likely be their own unique and fascinating story. If only we knew those stories. <laughs> Quite a while back, I wrote a breakdown of this on our website, historyofwesteros.com, mm -hmm. called Ten Warriors at the Tower of Joy, because I wanted to give more attention to those figures without getting distracted by the main, mm -hmm. if, and of course, you know, awesome story that's going on there. But there's, you know, it's easy to miss these interesting and fun details when there's bigger or larger story mm -hmm. elements kind of dominating, which is what happens with these dreams a lot, too. Now, George had to tell us that story of the Tower of Joy somehow. He wasn't going to write chapters from characters nearly two decades ago, so hmm. a dream made sense. Eddar 10. It was said that Rhaegar had named that place the Tower of Joy. But for Ned, it was a bitter memory. There had been seven against three, yet only two had lived to ride away. Eddard Stark himself and the little Cranach man Howland Reed. He did not think that it omened well that he should dream that dream again after so many years. But it wasn't a random dream, and there is no reason to suspect the supernatural, despite the use of the word omened. The milk of the poppy would make him sleep deeply, that's part of the picture here, and that's all straightforward enough. The part that is often lost in the shuffle is how Ned had just experienced out in the streets something very similar to what transpired in Dorne, and it couldn't help but dredge those memories back up again. Ned may not have realized how similar the events were, and you might not have either. So let's show the uh, stark similarities. <sighs> I get myself with those sometimes. Jory Cassell is killed fighting for Ned just like Jory's father did. And there is some familiar imagery here as well. Eddard 9. Littlefinger and the City Watch found him there in the street cradling Jory Cassell's body in his arms. Eddard won. They had found him, still holding her body, silent with grief. Ned may not have consciously noticed how familiar it all was. He doesn't make the connection in a way that we can see. But his subconscious seems to have done so. Yeah, there, and then there's more. Soon enough, he finds himself arguing with Robert, who is simultaneously arguing with Cersei. Ned wants justice for his slain men, but Robert thinks that they're even already since several of Jamie's men were killed too. But check this out. Not only do we have the exact same number of dead in the two scenarios, but look at this choice of words. Eddard 10. Jamie slew three of your men, and you five of his. 
Now it ends. Now you know which quote comes next, but you might not remember that it came earlier in this very same chapter. No, Ned said, with sadness in his voice. Now it ends. Ned has just had this dream. He's just relived it. Now it ends. In a bad dream, and here comes King Bob using the same phrase. Robert didn't mean to be cruel, but that was a nasty way to put it. And Ned's patience, already thin and inflamed by the intense pain in his leg, he loses it at this point and yells at Robert. It's just mm -hmm. too much. <laughs> Their argument ends when Robert strikes Cersei, and that kind of casts a pall over everything and, and calms things down. But the Tower of Joy is now on his mind again after so long, and it's not going to go away again so easily. Ned Stark was right to worry that he was dreaming that dream again. Eddard Twelve, A Game of Thrones. Sir Boros Blount guarded the far end of the bridge, white steel armor ghostly in the moonlight. Within, Ned passed two other knights of the King's Guard. Sir Preston Greenfield stood at the bottom of the steps, and Sir Barristan Selmy waited at the door of the King's bedchamber. Three men in white cloaks, he thought, remembering, and a strange chill went through him. Sir Barristan's face was as pale as his armour. Ned had only to look at him to know that something was dreadfully wrong. All too right, Ned. It's all downhill from here. Soon enough, Robert is dead. In a bed of blood, no less. <laughs> Joffrey is on the throne, and Lord Stark is in the black cells, cursing himself and worrying about his wife and children. But in the cells in darkness, his dreams are not of them, but of the past. Sad to say... Ned's juiciest bits come during his worst sufferings. Harsh. Yeah. <laughs> this time, we get our first glimpse of the tourney at Harrenhal, which leads him to dream of Lyanna and the blue winter roses that were given to her by Rhaegar as the Queen of Love and Beauty. Eddard 15. Ned Stark reached out his hand to grasp the flowery crown, but beneath the pale blue petals, the thorns lay hidden. He felt them clawing at his skin, sharp and cruel, saw the slow trickle of blood run down his fingers, and woke, trembling in the dark. Promise me, Ned. His sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. God save me, Ned wept. I am going mad. Ned's dreams of the past stand out because of how crucial they are to other storylines, but also, most of the point of views don't have a significant past to dream of. At the start, anyway. Simply because, like we said with Bran, most of them are children, and they literally don't have a lot of past to speak of. <laughs> Bran, Arya, and Jon's dreams are, well, they're hugely important, but since they mostly aren't of the past, they're coming up later in the episode. Sansa, though, she's in a different category. She's a case of lost identity. Yeah, she's older than Bran or Arya, but more importantly, she lost her wolf, and then all connection to her family. Her dreams don't have any obvious magical element to them, but she's also isolated and helpless most of the time. She has a lot to dream about, there's just no magic necessary. That's right, uh, she has many dreams of the recent past. At first, of course, she dreamt of marrying a prince. We all know what she was like early on. <laughs> it was technically a dream of the future, I guess. And I suppose it's still possible. We'll <laughs> see. Maybe she will end up marrying a prince. <laughs> she also dreamed of the thing she learned from Song, also <laughs> vaguely applied to her future, and also still possible. <laughs> but very quickly into the story, the real world strikes hard and keeps on hitting. Harder and harder. She's haunted by Lady's death, and then her father's. And then there's the riot. And then she dreams of marrying Joffrey, which is not unlike her marry a prince dreams. 
except completely unlike her Mary of Prince dreams. <laughs> By this point, it's a bad dream because Joffrey is Joffreying all over the place. And later on in the Eerie, she dreams of Tyrion seemingly feeling guilty for him taking the blame. Yeah, it's clear that her illusions are long gone. And though she had quite a serious backlog of naivete to unload, she's made a lot of progress. She shows a certain face to the world, and if that were all we saw, like many TV-only folk, we might not realize the depths of her change. But we readers see her dreams, and there's nothing quite so intimate and telling as the subconscious mind at work. I think this one says it all. Sansa for A Clash of Kings. There are gods, she told herself. And there are true knights, too. All the stories can't be lies. That night, Sansa dreamed of the riot again. The mob surged around her, shrieking, a maddened beast with a thousand faces. Everywhere she turned, she saw faces twisted into monstrous, inhuman masks. She wept and told them she had never done them hurt, yet they dragged her from the horse all the same. No! She cried. No, please don't! Don't! But no one paid her any heed. She shouted for Sedontos, for her brothers, for her dead father and her dead wolf, for gallant Soloris, who had given her a red rose once. But none of them came. She called for the heroes from the songs, for Florian and Sariam Redwine and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. But no one heard. Women swarmed over her like weasels pinching her legs and kicking her in the belly, and someone hit her in the face, and she felt her teeth shatter. Then she saw the bright glimmer of steel. The knife plunged into her belly and tore and tore and tore, until there was nothing left of her down there but shiny wet ribbons. So basically, she's having dreams of all of those different terrible things all mixed together. But there's a lot more going on than that. This is basically her official coming-of-age dream. She goes to sleep telling herself that there are gods and true knights, but the heroes in her dream didn't save her, not the ones from the stories, and not those still among the living. She suffered, and there was no happy ending, only death. And the gods took no note of it. Then she woke up and discovered that she was bleeding for real in a way that now made her officially a woman by the standards of her society. Ah, moon blood. <laughs> yeah, the dream knives plunging into her belly were a real-world manifestation. There's a lot of examples of that in these dreams, as you'll see. From here on out, she has quite a few dreams. None as intense as that last one. And individually, they don't really stand out as much as that one. But the patterns are very interesting. Now, old habits die hard, and so do old dreams. <laughs> Finding out that she might get to go to Highgarden and marry a Tyrell was a callback to her pre-King's Landing dreams. And it's mm. not clear if she even had actual dreams about it rather than just brief hopes. But it's worth mentioning because even before Tywin steps in to make her Tyrion's wife, she was clearly not backsliding into daydreams, even as hopeful as she was. Sansa too, a storm of swords. They are children, Sansa thought. They are silly little girls. Even Eleanor. They've never seen a battle. They've never seen a man die. They know nothing. Their dreams were full of songs and stories, the way hers had been before Joffrey cut her father's head off. Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. It's actually a bit like when her mother sees Renly's knights, young and knowing nothing of battle aside from stories and song. Yeah, it's a lot like that. Good point. Mm. Now, what's, what's next is one of the places where I think there's a bit of a surprise. 
She's made to marry Tyrion, we all know, uh, which was also a surprise at the time, <laughs> but not the one we mean to point to. Sansa for a storm of swords. That was such a sweet dream. Sansa thought drowsily. She had been back in Winterfell, running through the godswood with her lady. Her father had been there, and her brothers, all of them warm and safe. If only dreaming could make it so. She threw back the coverlets. I must be brave. Her torments would soon be ended, one way or the other. If Lady was here, I would not be afraid. Lady was dead, though. Rob, Bran, Rickon, Arya, her father, her mother, even Septim Ordain. All of them are dead but me. She was alone in the world now. There's a lot going on here in this dream of the past. The surprise is that she's having a good dream at all, and that it's the first chapter after she marries Tyrion. The pattern of bad dreams has a bit of a break right there. It may be due in part to the fact that, despite hating Tyrion, he has the notable distinction of being genuinely protective, and at one point they share a moment over bad dreams. She's still in a lot of danger, but her dreams may speak to a realization that the danger has lessened. Yeah, just a little, maybe, but it definitely has. I mean, she had nobody, and now <laughs> she has someone who certainly isn't her ideal husband, but he was at least powerful yeah. in, in his own way and willing to protect her. That's something. But she still thinks of herself as alone. And this is helping push her to grow and to make her own moves, to realize that she's going to have to do things on her by herself. Part of the pattern is that her dreams, as far as dreams go, are pretty simple, but in a specific way. She has a healthy emotional processing system, I would say. She <laughs> has dreams about the bad things that have happened recently, then seems to get it out of her system without permanent damage. I mean, she still thinks of these things. It's not like she just forgets about the riot after having the dream. But it doesn't seem to haunt her. She doesn't, she doesn't have these, like, waking up shivering in the night kind of moments. Maybe mm -hmm. she has a couple, but not a lot of them. She, yeah. Despite all these horrible things that have gone through, uh, happened to her, you know, she's come out of it all right. No one deserves what she's been through. But let's be honest, she kind of needed to see how things really were. <laughs> Sansa was not broken by these experiences, though. She can dream of the future because she still has one. In fact, it was a dream of home that inspired her to make that Winterfell snow castle. Yeah, but of course, she clearly does still have bad dreams, as could be expected. Yeah. Elaine won a feast for crows. It's singing he can't abide since Marillion killed his mother. Elaine had told the lie so many times that she remembered it that way more oft than not. The other seemed no more than a bad dream that sometimes troubled her sleep. It helps that she's pretending to be someone else. When Elaine gets close to becoming Sansa again, assuming that day comes, we might just see a different kind of dream, or at least dreams of some kind at all. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons to look for these patterns in the first place. It's so when a pattern breaks, you catch the significance. Here's a good example. Jamie Seven, A Feast for Crows Have you forgotten me? Can I forget someone I never knew? The words caught in his throat. He did know her, but it had been so long. Will you forget your own Lord Father, too? I wonder if you ever knew him truly. Her eyes were green, her hair spun gold. He could not tell how old she was. Fifteen, he thought, or fifty. She climbed the steps to stand above the bier. He could never abide being laughed at. That was the thing he hated most. Who are you? He had to hear her say it. The question is, 
Who are you? This is a dream. Is it? She smiled sadly. Count your hands, child. One. One hand, clasped tightly around the sword hilt. Only one. In my dreams, I always have two hands. He raised his right arm and stared uncomprehendingly at the ugliness of his stump. In this case, the pattern isn't hidden, it's presented to us. It's straight up said. Just like we're basically told that this is a dream of Jamie's mother. But it won't always be so clear. Jamie had been dreaming that his one-handed state was itself a nightmare. He seems to have come to terms with it here, but there's more going on than just that. A pattern that is a bit hidden is Jamie's dreams being very ambiguous. This one isn't truly a dream of the past. His mother is a figure from his past, but she's speaking to his current self. And she's telling him it's not a dream. It's awfully vivid, after all, mm -hmm. but... Well, maybe magic is involved, but he does wake up from it, so it was a dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> ah, and the other pattern we broke there was that wasn't a Stark dream anymore. <laughs> that was a lion of or a lion at night. <laughs> yes. So there's a touch of nightmare in this dream. I mean, and the death of his mother was a huge event, perhaps on the level of trauma. So that's where we're going next. Nightmares and trauma. Rounding out the Stark family, Catelyn, a trout at night, <laughs> has dreams too, of course, and she describes a few of them internally for the reader, but we do not see them as they happen. After Ned's death, they become understandably dark, and worse still, after she hears the false news of Bran and Rickon, and hears nothing of Arya. Catelyn won a storm of swords. That night, Catelyn slept fitfully, haunted by formless dreams of her children, the Lost and the dead. And it gets worse. We see her lament her own dreams and she dreads sleep. It's important and a crucial part of her character, but also rather straightforward. I mean, who wouldn't have bad dreams after what she went through? Yeah, and does she does she dream now that she's Lady Stoneheart? Hmm. <laughs> I would guess not. It says she doesn't sleep, yes, and we have a witness to Stoneheart's predecessor. Aria 7, a storm of swords. Lord Beric himself did not eat. Arya had never seen him eat, though from time to time he took a cup of wine. He did not seem to sleep, either. His good eye would often close, as if from weariness. But when you spoke to him, it would flick open again at once. That reminds me a bit of Melisandre, actually. Not the first time this episode, something has reminded me of Melisandre. Hmm. She drinks to wet her throat and eats to keep up appearances, and rest, well... Melisandre, a dance with dragons... She had no time for sleep with the weight of the world on her shoulders, and she feared to dream. Sleep is a little death. Dreams the whisperings of the other who would drag us all into his eternal night. She would sooner sit bathed in the ruddy glow of her red lord's blessed flames, her cheeks flushed by the wash of heat, as if by a lover's kisses. Some nights she drowsed, but never for more than an hour. One day... Melisandre prayed. She would not sleep at all. One day, she would be free of dreams. Melanie. She thought. Lot Seven. Now that's something. The character who most relies on prophecy, who looks constantly to the flames to see the future, is haunted by the past. She claims the world of dreams is the domain of the Great Other, 
But we have zero evidence of this and a lot of evidence that Melisandre misinterprets quite a lot of what she sees. Quite a lot. But <laughs> right, this is really cool in any case. Melisandre is a master of making the mundane seem supernatural. She uses real magic and trickery and most don't know the difference between the two. And here she is blaming the great other for her dreams, which sounds a lot more like trauma from being enslaved as a child than anything magical. So she's kind of a victim of her own methods. Her own way of thinking is kind of backfired on her hmm. here. I think. I mean, I don't yeah. really think that the dreams are the realm of the great other. I, I mean, maybe maybe she is right. But <laughs> Now, no character embraces magic more than Melisandre, right? Uh, she's much older than she seems. She's probably hiding her true appearance related to that. <laughs> and she seems to have transformed into something apart from the norm. I mean, like we said, she doesn't need to eat, hardly <laughs> sleeps. She's lost much of her humanity. Yet despite all this, she still has those very human dreams of her past. That's kind of neat. <laughs> Even though the dreams are really terrible. <laughs> it's something that has stayed with her all through these years and these changes that she's had. The trauma is still there. It impacts her in the now. Even though she kind of sees it in a different <laughs> light, maybe. And her version of the now is constantly wrapped up in looking at the future. Which brings us to Cersei, who has nightmares because of a look at the future. Her dreams are not magical, but she dreams of a prophecy, and that's magical. Gotta keep things straight now. So here's Cersei. Eddard 10. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks, and a tower long fallen, and Lyanna in her bed of blood. In the dream... His friends rode with him, as they had in life. I said we gotta keep these things straight. That's not Cersei. Cersei Seven, a feast for crows. She dreamt an old dream, of three girls in brown cloaks, a wattled crone, and a tent that smelled of death. The crone's tent was dark, with a tall peaked roof. She did not want to go in, no more than she had wanted to at ten, but the other girls were watching her so she could not turn away. There were three in the dream, as there had been in life. That's better. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, wow, George. First Ned has eerily similar details in life, triggering his own memories. Now he gives eerily similar writing in Cersei's chapter to remind us of Ned's dreams. That's meta, that's... Prologue, A Dance with Dragons. He dreamt an old dream of a hovel by the sea, three dogs whimpering, a woman's tears. All right, this is getting out of hand. <laughs> that one from Veramir isn't quite as similar, but George most certainly did this all on purpose. Both Cersei and Mr. Sixskins are remembering themselves in the very early childhood years, and all three of them are remembering a variety of terrifying and tragic things. The smell of death is a big part of these all three of these memories as well, and feature in each respective dream as an important detail. Ned and Cersei's dream images both contain references to the eyes of death, and the last we see of Veramir, he's facing actual blue eyes and real death. Perhaps most importantly, these are defining moments for them as human beings. Ned's promise to Lyanna and keeping of Jon, Cersei's fear of the Valonqar prophecy and the revelation that Veramir was a skin changer. Life changed forever because of these events, and that makes them unforgettable for these characters. In a way, it's, it's part of the POV pattern. Since the POV characters are the witnesses to some of the most key events in the series, 
And since a lot of those events are really rough things to witness, naturally there's going to be a lot of bad dreams of those events that these characters were a witness to. Yeah. In Cersei's case, Joffrey's death may well have confirmed, in her mind, that old prophecy that she's now dreaming of again. Cersei ate a feast for crows. In life, the crone had screamed at them in some queer foreign tongue and cursed them as they fled her tent, but in the dream her face dissolved, melting away into ribbons of grey mist until all that remained were two squinting yellow eyes, the eyes of death. The Valonqar shall wrap his hands around your throat, the queen heard, but the voice did not belong to the old woman. The hands emerged from the mists of her dream and coiled around her neck, thick hands and strong. Above them floated his face, leering down at her with his mismatched eyes. No, the queen tried to cry out, but the dwarf's fingers dug deep into her neck, choking off her protests. She kicked and screamed to no avail. Before long, she was making the same sound her son had made, the terrible thin sucking sound that marked Joff's last breath on earth. She woke, gasping in the dark, with her blanket wrapped around her neck. But, as you can tell, it's Tyrion she truly fears, right? For, forget your own thoughts on who the Valonqar really is. It, we're looking at it from Cersei's point mm -hmm. of view. She thinks it's Tyrion, that's how she's operating. She knows Maggie the Frog is long dead, and know her words are haunting. She doesn't share Jojen's attitude that the future can't be changed. And as... And thus is in constant fear. Mm -hmm. Since she believes Tyrion to be the Valonqar, he's the one to worry about. So it's interesting. Look at this supernatural thing happening here, but she's afraid of her brother. Yeah. And, you know, because of the supernatural prophecy, she's focused her fear on the person that she yeah. fears the most. It's interesting. Yeah. In fact, here's the very first thing we see in her very first chapter. Cersei won a feast for crows. She dreamt she sat the Iron Throne. High above them all, the courtiers were brightly coloured mice below. Great lords and proud ladies knelt before her. Bold young knights laid their swords at her feet and pleaded for her favours. And the queen smiled down at them, until the dwarf appeared as if from nowhere, pointing at her and howling with laughter. The lords and ladies began to chuckle too, hiding their smiles behind their hands. Only then did the queen realize she was naked. Well, her dream got that last bit right, mm. and people did laugh at her. This is a pretty specific dream, though dreams of being naked are fairly typical. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an old trope, right? Yeah. So, But either way, it's ambiguous, right? Tyrion had nothing to do with it in any, any case, but she just keeps blaming for him for it anyway. Mm. And if she keeps doing that, well, then she's going to miss the real enemies, <laughs> the real people that are doing it. And it's not like she doesn't have a lot of those, right? <laughs> but from her perspective, again, that's where we're taking this. It's hard to look at it logically if you're putting yourself in her place. She just saw her firstborn die in front of her and then learns that Tyrion has killed her father. And hey, Tyrion does want to kill her. Yeah, she's not wrong. It's like <laughs> that Nirvana line, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> I mean, she's got a lot of it wrong, but Tyrion does want to kill her. <laughs> so, anyway. Thanks to said firstborn Joffrey and said father Tywin, Arya bears witnessed her own father's execution as well as parts of the Red Wedding. 
She experiences that feeling of being so close to safety after such a long period of danger, only to find that safety wasn't so safe after all. Like Bran, she doesn't like her real dreams. Cat of the canals, a feast for crows. It was the other dream she hated. The one where she had two feet instead of four. In that one, she was always looking for her mother, stumbling through a wasted land of mud and blood and fire. It was always raining in that dream, and she could hear her mother screaming. But a monster with a dog's head would not let her go save her. In that dream, she was always weeping, like a frightened little girl. Cats never weep, she told herself. No more than wolves do. It's just a stupid dream. Now, Arya is tough, but this is a part of who she is. A person who witnessed the unthinkable. Bad dreams brought on by awful experiences certainly appear elsewhere. It's not just the Starks <laughs> and Jamie. <laughs> in point of views with fewer chapters, there's less time for George to fit that in, but he still does it. He makes, he gets it in there. These mm -hmm. are human characters and dreams are part of who they are. Mm -hmm. Most of them have at least something for us to bring up here today. For example, Aaron Dampere's trauma at the hands of his brother is with him at all times, awake and asleep. While Varys' maiming was even worse, and he tells Tyrion that he still dreams of that voice. Mm. Theon's treatment by Ramsay is perhaps the worst of them all, though interestingly we hear very little of his dreams after his torment. Instead, we see that he has major trouble sleeping. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> maybe it's, it may be that he's trying to avoid the dreams yes. that come. And anyway, before his torture, he has several interesting dreams, the first of which is a recurring one of Robert's forces on Pike. When he was a child, not Robert, Theon. <laughs> Robert's forces, Robert, King Robert the Child on, on Pike, yeah. No, but not, so this is right at the end of the Greyjoy Rebellion, Balon's Rebellion. It's it's not a good dream. It's a brief one, but yeah, not a good one. Yeah, because right after this, Theon is sent to live with the Starks mm -hmm. as a hostage. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a fond memory. <laughs> Davos dreams of the Battle of the Blackwater. Of the green flames and burning men, but mostly his sons. And it's all made worse because he's suffering exposure when having these dreams. This is right after the battle. And you remember, he was stranded on that little collection of rocks that were barely sticking out of the water there. So, of course, it's making things a lot worse. Mm -hmm. But it's another example of a dream of something that just happened. Yeah, very interesting. Tyrion himself has a number of dreams under the influence of wounds and milk of the poppy. Also after the Battle of the Blackwater. Yeah. One of them is a good one, but there's also Nightmares of the Battle, of Sir Mandan of having no voice, and later of Taisha, which brings us to another subcategory, Haunted by Guilt. We've shown examples of guilt by looking at Ned's head, but there's another important set of examples that took place in Ned's bed. <laughs> Ned's dead, baby. Ned's <laughs> dead. As we said, Theon has a lot of dreams, but they're almost all while he's sleeping in... The master bed at Winterfell after he's captured it. They are vivid and powerful dreams. And many in the fandom have wondered if that means the bed is made of werewood. I don't know if that matters. I think it has to be connected to the werewood network. Like a stump would probably work, but not a carved thing. Anyway, uh, that's an important distinction to make here. Especially since we're more concerned with the origins of the dreams than we are in trying to interpret what they mean. Right? Yeah. Uh, the evidence for... Werewoods leading to more intense dreams are simple. We've seen what the living trees can do, at least with Bran involved, and we've seen the suggestion that werewood stumps enhance dreams, which we'll, expo we'll explore a little bit more later. 
But we've also seen lots of things made of weirwood. Staves and furniture and doors and etc. Uh, there's no hints that those things are impacting dreams. But it is possible. So let's look at Theon's dream specifically and maybe you'll catch something that we didn't. Theon 5. A Clash of Kings. The sky was a gloom of cloud. The woods dead and frozen. Roots grabbed at Theon's feet as he ran, and bare branches lashed his face, leaving thin stripes of blood across his cheeks. He crashed through, heedless, breathless, icicles flying to pieces before him. Mercy, he sobbed. From behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy. When he glanced back over his shoulder, he saw them coming. Great wolves the size of horses, with the heads of small children. Oh, mercy, mercy! Blood dripped from their mouths black as pitch, burning holes in the snow where it fell. Every stride brought them closer. Theon tried to run faster, but his legs would not obey. The trees all had faces, and they were laughing at him, laughing, and the howl came again. He could smell the hot breath of the beasts behind him, a stink of brimstone and corruption. They're dead, dead, I saw them killed, he tried to shout. I saw their heads dipped in tar. But when he opened his mouth, only a moan emerged, and then something touched him, and he whirled, shouting. And he wakes up. <laughs> This dream has direwolves and laughing heart trees, but it could easily be that there's nothing magic about this one. It's another good example of ambiguity. His conscience is getting the best of him. Even though he didn't kill Brennan Rickon, he did kill the Miller's wife and her sons, and he dreams of dressing their corpses up mm -hmm. as he prepares to make them look like Bran and Rickon. Yeah, but it's what comes next that's probably the most interesting. Or at least the most confusing. <laughs> King Robert sat with his guts spilling out on the table, from the great gash in his belly, and Lord Eddard was headless beside him. Corpses lined the benches below, grey-brown flesh sloughing off their bones as they raised their cups to toast, worms crawling in and out of the holes that were their eyes. He knew them, every one. Jory Cassell and Fat Tom, Porthar and Cain, and Hollen, the master of horse, and all the others that had ridden south to King's Landing. Never to return. Micken and Shale sat together, one dripping blood, and the other water. Benfred Talhard and his wild hairs filled most of a table. The miller's wife was there as well, and Farlen. Even the wildling Theon had killed in the wolf's wood the day he had saved Bran's life. But there were others with faces he had never known in life, faces he had seen only in stone. The slim, sad girl who wore a crown of pale blue roses and a white gown spattered with gore could only be Lyanna. Her brother Brandon stood beside her and their father, Lord Rickard, just behind. Along the walls, figures half-seen moved through the shadows, pale shades with long, grim faces. The sight of them sent fear shivering through Theon, sharp as a knife. And then the tall doors opened with a crash, and a freezing gale blew down the hall, and Rob came walking out of the night, grey wind stalked beside, eyes burning, 
and man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Now that one's on the longer end, and again, seems like it could be magically enhanced. It might be foreshadowing of Rob's death there at the end, if not guilt, given that Theon betrayed him. But what's going on with Lyanna and Brandon and Rickard being there? It doesn't seem to be guilt-related, though it might be because, you know, he's taken away their home. He's imagining the different Starks that he's, you know, uprooted. <laughs> Uh, but something else might be going on, you know, because why is King Robert there? Like, he doesn't feel guilt over him. He had nothing to do with that. That's completely unrelated to him in any way. He's never expressed any emotion about Robert. You didn't know other Theon than... has a burning torch for King Robert. <laughs> other, yeah, other than the, the torch dream there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that one's a... That's, that We're going to have to leave that one in the... Don't know what's going on there category. There might be something magical. In the dreams are weird category. Yeah, the dreams are weird category. Maybe the three-eyed crow is, you know, like attacking his dreams, but... What's the most disturbing thing I can think of? Robert. Robert's gut spilling out. Yeah. Ah, that'll teach him. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, to move on. Guilt comes in a lot of forms. And one of the themes that we see several times is failing a loved one. Mm. Ned is one example, of course. And it's a particularly common theme with the point of views introduced in Feast and Dance. Yeah, Jon Snow is another. He has quite a few dreams about a grit after her death. And he knows the arrow that killed her wasn't his. But in his dreams, it was. <laughs> he feels guilty for her death. There you go. <laughs> Later, he dreams of the girl he thinks is Arya when he hears she's married Ramsay <laughs> and has guilt over that because his vows conflict with <laughs> doing anything about it. Yeah. Meanwhile, John Connington is haunted by the sound of bells when he dreams because the Battle of the Bells ruined him. It got him exiled, so there's that. But he feels particularly guilty about failing his crush, Rhaegar. Yeah, he seems to think about that more than about, you know, his losing, losing his career, you know. <laughs> Brienne, well, she dreams of Renly's death and blames herself. In her final chapter, she's having a fever dream and she's so out of it that she isn't even sure it's real when she's moments from being hanged. And before that, she dreams of being a young girl, unhappy and unsuited for this role thrust on her, being a young girl. <laughs> She's thinking to herself that she wants a sword, not a rose. She hates roses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she hated Loras. <laughs> she, she did. She hated Loras. <laughs> uh, but Barristan, not unlike Brienne, minus the pining, uh, <laughs> is haunted by his failures, as several kings died while he was in the king's card. But in his chapters, he's more troubled by the most recent of them. Yeah. The Queen's Guard, a dance with dragons. He had dreamed of it again last night. Belwars on his knees retching up bile and blood. Hisdar urging on the dragon slayers. Men and women fleeing in terror, fighting on the steps, climbing over one another, screaming and shouting, and Daenerys. Her hair was aflame. She had the whip in her hand, and she was shouting. Then she was on the dragon's back, flying. The sand that Drogon stirred as he took wing had stung Sir Barristan's eyes, but through a veil of tears he had watched the beast fly from the pit, his great black wings slapping at the shoulders of the bronze warriors at the gates. Barristan's dreams are about as straightforward as he is, if this one is typical. He's basically dreaming exactly what happened without much of a dream filter. These aren't hazy faces or metaphors come to life or any of the more common dream tropes. He feels as though he let Daenerys down, he's worried he's, she's dead, and obviously that's all very troubling. So in addition to this theme of failure to protect, we have an 
obvious case of someone who is primarily a protector but hasn't failed yet, Ario Hota. So how badly does that bode for him and for Doran Martell? Hmm. Not a trend you want to follow, Dorn. <laughs> now, in terms of dreams, all we see from Ario Hota is a dream of blood. Oranges. <laughs> so we'll call him an unknown. Uh, all he's dreamed about so far is fruit. I got, that's another example of a good dream. That's what passes for a good dream. Sleeping about, dreaming about oranges. So he's another protector in uh, Dorne, and we'll have to see what happens with him. Another protector in Dorne, also not Dornish like Ario, is Aris Okart. No dreams for him. He doesn't even have a head. <laughs> Yeah, Ariane still has her head, and she has nightmares of Sir Aris, who she feels guilt over. But not a lot of dreaming from her other than that. Ariane's poor brother did no dreaming either that we saw. Asha seems to be on the dreamless side so far as well. We just haven't seen it. So if we see dreams from any one of those characters in The Winds of Winter, I think it'll be something to take special note of. That's right. There's a pattern to look out for. Yeah. Another interesting character is Victorian, who has guilt over beating his own wife to death, but we don't see him dream of it. Yeah. He doesn't exactly seem like a man that would carry a lot of guilt. And even less so would be his brother Euron. Though Euron's dreams might be worth a look. Not so sure I want to see Euron's dreams. Especially not when he's on Shade of the Evening. It was <laughs> it was scary enough when Danny drank it. What? Who am I kidding? I would love to see Euron's dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Daenerys, she's going to be all over this episode. Because she has just about every kind of magical dream. And a few of the non-magical kinds. Yeah, yeah, really. She may have the most different types of dreams of any character. It's possible. We didn't, mm. we didn't, ex we didn't count that particular no, thing. I but if we did, that. I bet she'd come out ahead. <laughs> <laughs> now, her wake the dragon dream, which uh, we we called it in the Great Empire of the Dawn uh, episode. I think uh, LML coined that term. Mm -hmm. It's both magical and non-magical. She has fever from pregnancy complications. And given what came out of her, you know, Rago, the Ooh. dragon baby thing. Well, yeah, so no wonder there was some complications there. But she also sees her ancestors, you know, with their hair like hers and those gemstone eyes and the pale swords of fire. And they're telling her to go faster. Mm -hmm. And then she flies and dreams that she's the last dragon. In her next chapter, she becomes the mother of dragons. There you go. And that was no fever dream. And it took her from out of the past and into the present. And so shall we. Part 2, Dreams of the Present. Bran 4, A Storm of Swords. The dream he'd had. The dream Summer had had. No, I mustn't think about that dream. He had not even told the reeds. Though Mira at last seemed to sense that something was wrong. If he never talked of it, maybe he could forget he ever dreamed it. And then it wouldn't have happened. And Rob and Greywind would still be... When we think about dreams in A Song of Ice and Fire, we mostly think about foreshadowing. When a character has a vivid dream, what it means for the future of the character or the story takes center stage. But a lot of dreams in A Song of Ice and Fire are not dreams at all, not foreshadowing, but they're of something happening in the present. Yeah, like that quote. <laughs> Bran is reflecting on his dream of the Red Wedding, in this case. Now, George gave us several front row seats to that already. We didn't need intense dreams of it from afar as well. Well, that puts us squarely in supernatural territory, by definition alone. I mean, if you're dreaming of something that is happening right then, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Davos too, a clash of kings. I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying. A green tent, candles, a woman screaming, and blood. Stannis looked down at his hands. 
I was still abed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh and my lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armoured. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Devon says I thrashed and cried out. But what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died. And when I woke, my hands were clean. Sir Davos Seaworth could feel his phantom fingertips start to itch. Something is wrong here, the one-time smuggler thought. Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Something is wrong here. <laughs> In a sense, it becomes a dream of the past, sort of, since Stannis keeps having the dream. But it is a recurring dream of something that he first witnessed in a dream of the present, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we're putting it here. Mm -hmm. He witnessed his brother's death through his own shadow and is traumatized by it. <laughs> and it's in a very un and it's a very Stannis way of trauma. You know, yeah. trauma isn't you know Stannis is not the kind of guy that would be phased by trauma the way other people would. Yeah. But less traumatized is not untraumatized. Yes. Stannis expresses sorrow over Renly's death at various points. He says his hands are clean, but I think that we're supposed to glean that he's trying to convince himself, not that he truly believes himself innocent. Yeah. The vivid clarity of the dream is surely a factor that encourages doubt, and Stannis is not a man with many doubts, so that alone makes this noteworthy. Right. If he's doubting something, <laughs> something's up, right? That dude just decides, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but that said... What are Stannis' dreams like normally? It's not like we have much to compare to here, right? Maybe Stannis has had other supernatural dreams that he dismissed, like this one. I mean, this is a man who says the gods mean nothing to him because, you know, they they screwed him. They killed his parents, so screw the gods. You know, this that's, that's his attitude. But he's got a Targaryen grandmother, after all, and his great-grandfather was Egg, who had dreams of dragons like all his brothers did, and, you know, that led to Summerhall, so... Yeah. Again, though, Sandus' dreams are not talked about much. Someone we do know a lot about is Bran. Yeah. Bran Seven, A Game of Thrones. The mention of dreams reminded him. I dreamed about the crow again last night. The one with three eyes. He flew into my bedchamber and told me to come with him. So I did. We went down to the crypts. Father was there, and we talked. He was sad. And why was that? Lewin peered through his tube. It was something to do about John, I think. The dream had been deeply disturbing, more so than any of the other crow dreams. So, long before he learns about his powers, he dreams of his father's death. We could chalk this up to his latent greenseer abilities, except greenseers are supposed to be extremely rare, and this dream... Well, it wasn't. <laughs> Rickon, Bran said softly. Father's not here. Yes, he is. I saw him. Tears glistened on Rickon's face. I saw him last night. In your dream? Rickon nodded. You leave him. You leave him be. He's coming home now. Like he promised, he's coming home. His spirit indeed came home. Probably because this is the chapter just after Ned's death. Bran is sensing his father's regret over not being able to tell John the things he promised to tell him. But in thinking about how this dual dream is possible, well, Rickon almost certainly isn't a green seer. So perhaps death is that powerful a force in A Song of Ice and Fire. Spirits or the soul could be real in this setting. 
<laughs> or Bloodraven reached out to Rickon, knowing Bran would find out to hmm. maybe convince him yeah. that something was going on. Or it somehow relates to their other mag- magical talents, like wolf dreams. Uh-huh. Bran won a clash of kings. Of late, he often dreamed of wolves. They are talking to me, brother to brother, he told himself when the dire wolves howled. He could almost understand them. Not quite, not truly, but almost. As if they were singing in a language he had once known and somehow forgotten. The Walders might be scared of them, but the Starks had wolf blood. Old Nan had told him so. Though it is stronger in some than in others, she warned. The original approach we took with this episode, since it was centered on prophecy and foreshadowing only, would have left out wolf dreams. Which would have been a shame, because there's a lot of them, and they're cool. Yeah, yeah, they are cool. Now, awake and aware, a fully realized skin changer can control an animal completely, though the bond can be broken by extreme pain or weakness. Asleep, this remains true, and a skin changer can slip into an animal while their body rests, willing or not. Jojen confirms this. Bran 5, A Clash of Kings. The wolf dreams are no true dreams. You have your eye closed tight whenever you're awake. But as you drift off, it flutters open, and your soul seeks out its other half. The power is strong in you. At least when the animal is a wolf, right? I suppose <laughs> there's eagle dreams and boar dreams out there, too. Or maybe there's some <laughs> skagosi that have had unicorn dreams, right? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. In any case, it appears that a fledgling skin changer can achieve a weaker form of connection without meaning to while asleep. We've seen this not just from Bran, but John and Arya as well. The dreamer is a witness to the animal in real time and doesn't take control. This is why John and Arya and Bran don't understand what's happening. They don't relate it to the idea of skin changing at first, because they don't really have control. Yeah, now the reader knows pretty much right away, but the characters don't see clear, as clearly what's happening. Because we get to see each of the young Stark skin changers figuring out what's happening. And they get to see in significantly different ways what's going on. Yeah, starting with Bran, well, this one's the easiest. Jojen flat out tells him that he's a warg and more, and that he himself is a green dreamer. There's proof of all of these things, the kind that's hard to ignore. So Bran has a guide, then at the cave a teacher, or several really counting children. (laughs) It makes a huge difference though that he doesn't have to figure it all out himself. Yeah, now John just can't help but figure out what he is, but for different reasons. What he sees and feels through Ghost's perspective is flat out confirmed through physical evidence. In other words, what John saw in his dreams, he was able to corroborate while awake, such as seeing the huge wildling host and feeling the pain of being attacked by Orel the eagle, followed by seeing the actual talon and beak wounds caused by the eagle on Ghost. He also encountered other real skin changers and people who talked openly about them as, as if they were typical, not something out of a story, especially the wildlings. However, what he just what he saw just before being attacked by Orel was his first ever wolf dream, right? Mm-hmm. That's seven chapters into a clash of kings. I bet I bet most of you, including myself, before researching, would have guessed that it would have come sooner than that. Good trivia question. Yeah, that's true. And this is not just a wolf dream. That's we have another example of an ambiguous dream here. It appears to be his awakening. As a skin changer, and maybe more. It, the dream was just way too long to quote, and even though we've had some long dreams in here, this one is just, there's <laughs> so much going on. It begins with him as Ghost, lamenting how scattered his packmates are and how lonely that makes him feel. 
Then a werewood with three fierce eyes appears, and John thinks that it's Bran. And John's afraid, but the voice he thinks of as Bran's tells him not to be afraid, and that he needs to open his third eye like he himself did. The tree, the tree in his dream, that is, mm-hmm. touches him in the forehead, his dream forehead, and suddenly he's a, back in his the wolf dream, and he's mm-hmm. seeing the wildling host again. Yeah. But meanwhile, back in Winterfell, Bran has just been taken captive by Theon, or maybe he's hiding in the crypts. It's hard to know which chapter exactly parallels which in time. Yeah. It's unimportant. In any case, there's no strong indication in Bran's point of view that he reached out to John on purpose. Yeah, so it's kind of unclear how that all happened. It doesn't like Bran doesn't seem to re- perceive this on his end as much. So some people think maybe that it's Bloodraven pretending to be Bran so that it's familiar, but there's. Ah, there's problems with that too. In any case, it's really interesting that John's full first wolf dream has questions like this surrounding it, and that it comes at such an important time, right when that wildling host is there. It's yeah. that's why people think Blood Raven may have involved. The timing is just really particular. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, Arya is another matter than Bran and John. Mm. No one is teaching her or encouraging her to use her skills, and she's been pretty pretty long separated from her wolf. But she still has a lot of dreams that she's Nymeria. The first is actually really sneaky. It happens when she's with Yorin and his recruits for the Wall. Arya Four, A Clash of Kings. She must have slept, though she never remembered closing her eyes. She dreamt a wolf was howling, and the sound was so terrible that it woke her at once. Arya sat up on her pallet with her heart thumping. Hoppai, wake up! She scrambled to her feet. Wolf Gendry, didn't you hear? She pulled on a boot. All around her, men and boys stirred and crawled from their pallets. What's wrong? Hot Pie asked. Hear what? Gendry wanted to know. Harry had a bad dream, someone else said. No, I heard it, she insisted. A wolf. Harry has wolves in his head, sneered Lommy. Right you are, Lommy. Though it's just the one wolf, and Ari's a girl. (laughs) Almost immediately after this, Kurz, another one of the people in the party, blows his horn in warning, and then Sir Emery Lorch appears at the gates. That makes the wolf in her dreams forgettable, both to her and the reader. But on a reread, it looks like a... Maybe a fledgling wolf dream, her yeah. first one. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that Arya's first wolf dream comes so long after she parts with Nymeria. Soon after this one, though, they come out often. Arya won a storm of swords. Her dreams were red and savage. The mummers were in them, four at least. A pale Lysini and a dark, brutal axeman from Ib. The scarred Dothraki horse lord called Igo and a Dornish man whose name she never knew. On and on they came, riding through the rain in rusting mail and wet leather, swords and axe clanking against their saddles. They thought they were hunting her. She knew with all the strange, sharp certainty of dreams, but they were wrong. She was hunting them. She was no little girl in the dream. She was a wolf, huge and powerful, and when she emerged from beneath the trees in front of them and bared her teeth in a low, rumbling growl, she could smell the rank stench of fear from horse and man alike. 
Now that becomes typical, that kind of dream. Early on, Arya dreams of getting lost in the Red Keep, and she dreams of her father's death. Nothing outstanding kind of stuff that you would kind of expect. Mm -hmm. But then she starts having wolf dreams, and that's basically all she has. And she has, like you said, a lot of them, and she loves them. They give her strength. She, yeah. she really likes yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Despite her slower start, Arya has more wolf dreams than Bran or Jon, which is probably in part a function of her having way more chapters than Bran. Plus, Jon had this long period of inability to war ghost. That's commonly attributed to them being on opposite sides of the wall. Part of the explanation for having so many more wolf dreams is that there's a story to tell on both sides. When Ghost is separated from John, he's just taking a really long walk. Uh, <laughs> Nymeria, on the other hand, is leading a pack, killing the bloody mummers, and apparently a lion or three. Uh, this pack is spoken of throughout the Riverlands, and Arya's our point of view to this, despite her being so far away. So each of her dreams contains a Nymeria update and a reminder. That this wolf has a role to play still. She is Chekhov's wolf. <laughs> Arya is Chekhov. <laughs> but despite how many times George has written wolf dreams for her, she continues to think of them as dreams only. At no point does it straight up occur to her that she's seeing through Nymeria's eyes. Yeah, not consciously anyway. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know. To be fair, she was separated from her brothers before any of the clues appeared that the whole bunch of them were wargs. <laughs> she's probably only ever heard of the term... In Old Nan's tales, that's what Bran and John think of when it's mm -hmm. first when they're first confronted with it. So she doesn't really have a frame of reference for this, like Bran and John do. Again, John was confronted with the reality of it. He was, sees other skin changers, people talking about it. Bran, well, it's told to him straight up, right? <laughs> and Arya then he was confronted with the reality. Of yeah, it. <laughs> and confronted with the reality of it, right? So there's just, just all this evidence for them both. Arya, on the other hand, mm -hmm. she doesn't know this is happening to her brothers. She doesn't know anyone who can explain it to her, and she's a whole continent away. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this situation, dreams are the only thing that can explain things for her. She starts to learn a bit, despite the lack of understanding, but mm. not fully. Here we go. Aria 2, A Feast for Crows. Aria heard much and more that night, but almost all of it was in the tongue of Bravos and she hardly understood one word in ten. Still as stone, she told herself. The hardest part was struggling not to yawn. Before the night was done, her wits were wandering. Standing there with the flagon in her hands, she dreamt she was a wolf, running three through a moonlit forest, with a great pack howling at her heels. Or is this just her imagination, a bit of daydreaming on her part? It's hard to say, but probably skin-changing. Yeah. We do have a more definitive example in any case. We may have been premature in saying that the face in saying that the faceless men aren't helping her with her skin-changer skills. Being blind is what may have finally pushed her into catching on. And we do mean catching on. <laughs> Ka-ching. The Blind Girl, A Dance with Dragons. I know that you're the one who's been hitting me. Her stick flashed out and cracked against his fingers, sending his own stick clattering to the floor. The priest winced and snatched back his hand. And how could a blind girl know that? I saw you. I gave you three. I don't need to give you four. Maybe on the morrow she would tell him about the cat that had followed her home last night, from Pinto's, the cat that was hiding in the rafters, looking down on them. Now, this appears to be her first conscious, or at least fully aware, skin change. 
a wolf as a cat. <laughs> She's a traitor. <laughs> uh, cat was a wolf. <laughs> Oh, well, this animal blending. I can't keep up with it. No, but in in Mercy, she's still dreaming of Nymeria and doesn't give the reader any hint that she's making use of her skill. There's your little, here's a small uh, T-Wow spoiler here. She isn't exactly coming to terms with what she is, even after cheating on her blindness with cat's eyes. It's not the only time she skin changes into a cat, either. I mean, come on, Arya, that's clearly not normal. Yeah. Mercy, the winds of winter. She woke with a gasp, not knowing who she was or where. The smell of blood was heavy in her nostrils, or was that her nightmare lingering? She had dreamed of wolves again, of running through some dark pine forest with a great pack at her heels, hard on the scent of prey. Her true name was Mercedine, but Mercy was all anyone ever called her, except in dreams. She took a breath to quiet the howling in her heart, trying to remember more of what she'd dreamt, but most of it had gone already. There had been blood in it, though, and a full moon overhead, and a tree that watched her as she ran. And the tree isn't just watching, it's thinking to itself, have you seriously not figured out that you're a skin changer yet? Come on, girl. <laughs> One day. <laughs> and John knows what he is, but he doesn't seem to dwell on it. He doesn't have a moment where he thinks, well, damn, I'm a skin changer. <laughs> Borak, the boar skin changer, openly calls him brother and gets a flat reaction from John. Maybe he just learned a lesson from Tyrion about owning what you are. I mean, he used to be touchy about being a bastard, but he got over that quickly. When uh, he does dwell on how he feels alone without Ghost, even when he's with Ygritte, which is interesting because Ghost, in his dreams, feels alone without his pack. And you wonder if that's mm -hmm. connected in some way. And this uh, comes... During that time when he loses all sense of Ghost, though. So, even more interesting. Uh, the really interesting question out of this is the future of John's dreams of the present. Meaning, what happens now that he's dead, apparently? <laughs> What's going to happen when he comes back? Is he still going to skin change the same way? Is he still going to have wolf dreams? How is that going to work? Maybe he won't dream at all anymore. I, it's, it's, I'm looking forward to seeing how that's handled. John 2, A Dance with Dragons. The smells are stronger in my wolf dreams. He reflected. And food tastes richer too. Ghost is more alive than I am. Maybe he will dream even more, right? That's another possible yeah. thing. I suggest dreaming hmm. less, but maybe it'll be more, right? The living, hmm. the idea of living on in Ghost after he's dead is popular, and here's part of why. John won a dance with dragons. The wolf dreams had been growing stronger, and he found himself remembering them even when awake. Ghost knows that Greywind is dead. Rob had died at the Twins, betrayed by men he'd believed his friends, and his wolf had perished with him. Bran and Rickon had been murdered too, beheaded at the behest of Theon Greyjoy, who had once been their Lord Father's ward. But if dreams did not lie, their direwolves had escaped. At Queen's Crown, one had come out of the darkness to save John's life. Summer... It had to be. His fur was grey, and Shaggy Dog is black. He wondered if some part of his dead brothers lived on inside their wolves. I recall George saying that Bran was more powerful overall because he has a wide range of abilities, and again, instruction. <laughs> but in terms of raw skin-changing talent alone, he says John might be the stronger. Snow, the moon murmured. The wolf made no answer. 
Snow crunched beneath his paws. The wind sighed through the trees. Far off, he could hear his packmates calling to him, like to like. They were hunting too. A wild rain lashed down upon his black brother as he tore at the flesh of an enormous goat, washing the blood from his side where the goat's long horn had raked him. In another place, his little sister had lifted her head to sing to the moon, and a hundred small grey cousins broke off their hunt to sing with her. Now, in that dream, John is having a wolf dream, obviously, and Ghost is in turn sensing his remaining littermate. So John is having wolf dreams of all the wolves, in a sense, except for Summer, who he can't sense at the moment, probably for the same reason he couldn't sense Ghost for a while, because of them being on opposite sides of the wall. At this moment, Summer is beyond the wall. Uh, they aren't inside Bloodraven's cave yet, by the way. Now, John lost track of ghosts when they were on opposite sides of the wall, so there you go. That's the pattern. Yeah, that's not the only time that John has wolf dreams that aren't of ghosts. He dreams of Grey Wind in the crypts just after his death, for example. And as for Rickon, the way that Shaggy Dog mirrors his emotional state and personality just so well, I think is a pretty clear indicator of what's going on. But there are no wolf dreams to analyze. No. <laughs> Rob's point of view would have been interesting for this. And actually, as, a, as an aside, Sansa has what's almost a wolf dream. For a moment, she wakes up and she's picturing Lady. And it's right after her death. Mm. And she felt like it was so real. But that's another vague one. And in Rob's case, it would be really cool to see. Because he used Grey Wind in battle. And for scouting out, you know, goat tracks and the like. <laughs> Love seeing goat tracks. <laughs> but seriously, think about that. In battle. I mean, that what a POV that would be. And we, we would get a better sense of how clear Rob is on what's going on himself, like whether he came to terms with what he was. We may get that kind of intensity from Ghost later. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's battles yet to come. And yeah. so we might get that later. Yeah. Know, so Yeah, I'm curious just how aware and conscious of it Rob was. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder whether he realized how it was being used against him as mm. well. The phrase in Lannister has made all kinds of crazy claims about Northmen turning into wolves and doing savage things. And Jojen explains that even other Northerners are unforgiving on this count. And this is when Bran is first told before he's accepted it. Bran Five, A Clash of Kings. Wog, said Jojen Reed. Bran looked at him, his eyes wide. What? Wog, shape-changer, beastling, that is what they will call you, if they should ever hear of your wolf dreams. The names made him afraid again. Who will call me? Your own folk, in fear. Some will hate you if they know what you are. Some will even try to kill you. Old Nan told scary stories of beastlings and shape-changers sometimes. In the stories, they were always evil. I'm not like that, Bran said. I'm not. It's only dreams. John's reaction is somewhat similar, though. He doesn't have any doubt, really, like Bran does. Uh, note how different this is from how the wildlings see those with wolf dreams. They just think it's, well, it happens. <laughs> and the Night's Watchman with Corrin... Uh, you know, Eben and Stone Snake and those guys, they took note of what John was, and they didn't seem to love it or hate it. They just accepted it. But they might be exceptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe Rob should have kept it more hidden. But how could he have, really? Yeah, I don't know. He you doesn't know, have... You're give up your wolf. <laughs> no, that wasn't really a good option either. Oh. Uh, he, he doesn't have the options like these we're going to describe next. Glamour dreams. Melisandre. A dance with dragons. The glamour, aye, 
In the black iron fetter about his wrist, the ruby seemed to pulse. He tapped it with the edge of his blade. The steel made a faint click against the stone. I feel it when I sleep, warm against my skin, even through the iron, soft as a woman's kiss. Your kiss. But sometimes in my dreams, it starts to burn, and your lips turn into teeth. Every day, I think how easy it would be to pry it out, and every day, I don't. That was Mance Raider, made to look like Rattleshirt, as you probably know. The magic here... Well, it's not just a glamour. It's a form of control. It's... And the slave ruby thing, it seems to be part of both. This is not entirely clear here, but this is what we think is going on. So the power of Mel compels Mance. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem to be reciprocal. We don't see Melisandre dreaming of Mance, but as we pointed out earlier, she kind of avoids dreams in general. She dreamed of Mance before that. <laughs> so dashing. In another way, yes. <laughs> she loved that red silk cape that he used to have. <laughs> Also, yeah. with Melisandre, we've only got the one chapter yeah. of her, so we don't... There's not, not a lot, lot of data, of, yeah. Not a lot of chances. Still, it's, it's a really cool detail right there. Whether it's the glamour, the compulsion, or both, it has a presence in his dreams. We don't have any examples like this to compare it to, but we found a reference to dreams and disguises elsewhere. So, we're back to Arya. Already, yeah. The ugly little girl, a dance with dragons. You may have bad dreams for a time warned the kindly man. Her father beat her so often and so brutally that she was never truly free of pain or fear until she came to us. Perhaps there's some of that magical overlap going on here with the glamours of Relorism and those of the faces men. That night, she does have bad dreams, but they're not of the girl whose face she wears. They're of the Hall of Faces itself and of her own family. Hmm... Sleep did not come easily that night. Tangled in her blankets, she twisted this way and that in the cold, dark room. But whichever way she turned, she saw the faces. They have no eyes, but they can see me. She saw her father's face upon the wall. Beside him hung her lady mother, and below them, her three brothers all in a row. No, that was some other girl. I am no one. And my only brothers were robes of black and white. This is very significant. In one sense, in this moment, Arya has never been farther from herself. She's wearing someone else's face after a string of fake identities. Mm. She even tries to convince herself. Yet there was the black singer. There the stable boy she'd killed with needle. There the pimply squire from the crossroads inn. And over there, the guard whose throat she'd slashed to get them out of Harrenhal. The tickler hung on the wall as well, the black holes that were his eyes swimming with malice. The sight of him brought back the fear of the dagger in her hand as she had plunged it into his back again and again and again. So it's like the more she loses herself, the more she can't escape who she is. It's a really cool part of Arya's storyline. Her stubbornness is really central and kind of epic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So it looks like Bran, Danny, and Jon have the widest variety of magical dreams, but Arya's no stranger either. Ah, she's no crone or maiden either. <laughs> yeah. She's a maiden. She's no mother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, it's time to go to a different time. And now let's take a moment to glorify our Patreon Ironborn Captains. Kathleen the Ruthless, Captain of the Night Terror. 
Black Matos Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge. Rabea, Lady of Waves, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. Tusk Shield, Breaker Captain of Kraken's Fury. And Oisin the Wanderer, Captain of Naga's Living Flame. Also, a special shout-out to Lady Lazara Dajo, the Iron Lily, and Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars. Thanks, guys and gals. Some of the names you hear from our supporters are names created by them, but others are made by us. So if you've been meaning to support the show but can't think of a nickname you want, let us do that for you. It's fun. If you've got shopping to do, holiday or otherwise, why not go to Amazon.com and shop from home? If you go to HistoryOfWesteros.com and shop through any of our Amazon links, you'll be supporting the show without charging yourself any additional money. We'd appreciate it. Part 3. Dreams of the Future We told you that there were just so many dreams to discuss from so many different characters, and the pace doesn't slow down with dreams of what's to come. As you might guess, Green Dreams. Bran for a clash of kings. My brother has the green sight, said Mira. He dreams things that haven't happened, but sometimes they do. There is no sometimes, Mira. A look passed between them. Him sad, her defiant. One of the things I find most interesting when comparing dreams to prophecy is intent. And how that can purify or screw up the whole thing. With prophecies, there's generally someone looking for it. Looking for answers or truth or advantage. You don't stumble on prophecy generally. Prophets Also, prophets are often proud of being the vessel that brings that message. At the very least, they have a stake in it. Yeah, whereas dreamers are unwilling vessels. They don't go looking into the flames. They just go to sleep. They don't have a say in the matter or in the truth. As Jojen says, Bran 5, A Clash of Kings. The dream was green, Bran, and the green dreams do not lie. Story checks out. We've yet to see them lie, though we have seen them be misinterpreted. So here's where vision and prophecy and dream all have common ground. Human error. Right. They can be fooled just like people. I dreamed of the man who came today, the one they call Reek. You and your brother lay dead at his feet, and he was skinning off your faces with a long red blade. Jojen wasn't able to perceive the trick, but he knew it was a true vision and that it could not be changed. This is a lesson Jojen seems to have taken strongly to heart, despite his youth. Bran won a storm of swords. Jojen Reed was thirteen, only four years older than Bran. Jojen wasn't much bigger either, no more than two inches or maybe three. But he had a solemn way of talking that made him seem older and wiser than he really was. At Winterfell, Old Nan had dubbed him Little Grandfather. Now, Old Nan, game, recognize game there. <laughs> <laughs> but seeing the future does not make a person happy. It might do the opposite. It's a terrible burden, and this is reflected in how Jojen is essentially a joyless person. He's accepted what he is, and a survivor doesn't seem to be it. Mm. Whereas Melisandre is the opposite of this. From her point of view, we see her making guesses, snap judgments, jumping to conclusions, and frequently looking to the flames for signs of danger to herself. They both seem to be capable of facing extreme danger with complete conviction, but it manifests very differently. Melisandre has confidence and optimism. Jojen has confidence and resignation. Bran 3, A Dance with Dragons it is given to a few to drink of that green fountain, while still in mortal flesh, to hear the whisperings of the leaves, and see as the trees see, as the gods see, said Jojen. Most are not so blessed. The gods gave me only green dreams. 
My task was to get you here. My part in this is done. Many see this as evidence for the Jojen Paste theory, which posits that Jojen was fed to Bran in the Werewood Paste as part of awakening his powers. Prior to this, we have many examples of him ignoring danger because this is not the day I die. Eventually, though, it will be. <laughs> yeah, it seems that he's doomed regardless. Dead meat? Maybe. Dead? Most likely. <laughs> he wants to go home. Mira told Bran. He will not even try and fight his fate. He says, the green dreams do not lie. Well, this line is hard to understand. If his fate is to die and he isn't willing to fight that fate, why is he wishing for home? Hmm. With Reek, they didn't realize what they were seeing with the dead boys. So perhaps there's room for error here too. Maybe that's what Jojen, maybe he has a small bit of hope for that reason. Part of the problem here, though, is that we don't hear this directly from Jojen. It's not a direct quote from him. This is Mira talking. This illustrates a key inherent problem with glimpses of the future. Too often, someone takes a close interpretation and runs with whichever half they prefer. Like, it could be this, it could be this. They decide on this, <laughs> you know, and take it as if it were a sure thing. They're like, ah, oh, it must be that. <laughs> as, as Forgetting that it was a close interpretation. Yeah. You know, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's much better when we actually get them straight from the dreamer's mouth. Because when we get them from the dreamer's mouth, well, Jojen's green dreams are hard to understand the first time you read them. But once the hidden meaning is revealed, they make perfect sense. Bran 5, A Clash of Kings I dreamed that the sea was lapping all around Winterfell. I saw black waves crashing against the gates and towers. And then the salt water came flowing over the walls and filled the castle. Drowned men were floating in the yard. Theon and his Ironborn are, of course, the metaphorical salt water and black waves at Winterfell in Georgian's dream. Now, we've said many times that George loves to reverse things by giving the answer before revealing the question. And dreams give us a few examples of that. So we're going to un-reverse this one. First, the event predicted by the Green Dream, news that their uncle Stevron was dead following a great victory by Rob at the Battle of Oxcross. Yes, said little Walder. We're very sad. They weren't, though. Bran got a sick feeling in his belly. They like the taste of this dish better than I do. Now, the actual green dream, one chapter before. Bran four, A Clash of Kings. You were sitting at supper, but instead of a servant, Maester Lewin brought you your food. He served you the king's cut of the roast, the meat rare and bloody, but with a savoury smell that made everyone's mouth water. The meat he served the phrase was old and grey and dead, Yet they like their supper better than you like yours. Oh, there you go. Bran saw Jojen do this over and over, and it really convinced him, especially when things got desperate at Winterfell. Jojen had all the proof Bran needed to be willing to go on a dangerous journey beyond the wall. This one here, I think, really turned the tide. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to work with grey stone chains, he said. It was a green dream, so I knew it was true. A crow was trying to peck through the chains, but the stone was too hard and his beak could only chip at them. Did the crow have three eyes? Jojen nodded. One of the reasons this convincing was needed so badly is that Bran had a major trusted influence pushing him in the other direction before Theon's tack. All of us have dreams that come true sometimes. You dreamed of your lord father in the crypts before we knew he was dead, remember? Rickon did too. We dreamed the same dream. Call it green sight, if you wish. 
But remember as well all those tens of thousands of dreams that you and Rickon have dreamed that did not come true. But Jojen was right too many times, and there were the wolf dreams and the dreams Bran had in his coma as well. Osha kicked in a thought that turned out to be quite true as well, a piece of sneaky foreshadowing. Bran 7, A Game of Thrones The children of the forest could tell you a thing or two about dreaming. Yeah, they could, and that's one of the best parts. The ghost of the High Heart may or may not be a child, or partly a child, anyway. Mm -hmm. Either way, she can tell us more than a thing or two about dreaming. She lives in a grove of 31 weirwood stumps, the trees supposedly cut down by the Andal King Ereg the Kinslayer. Now, the place is shunned by the small folk because of so-called ghosts of the children of the forest, which is what the ghost of High Heart herself sounds mm -hmm. like. <laughs> yeah, so the stumps may or may not be relevant. After all, Jojen doesn't seem to need to be too near a weirwood to have green dreams. But they might just amplify them. And the ghost herself tells Thoros that his red priest powers won't work in the grove. So clearly there is magic afoot for multiple reasons. During two separate chapters, we hear her deliver a number of dreams of the future. Though it's possible that some were of the past. It's not clear when she had the dreams because she's relaying them after the fact. She dreamt of Renly's death, for example, and tells the outlaws so. But this is in A Storm of Swords after he's dead. It's not, like I said, maybe she had the dream before he died. Maybe she dreamt it happening. No. It's not really clear. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is that all of them came true. And none of them are left open. Yeah, they're all done. All Everything okay. she's predicted happened. And there you go. But one of them... Sansa slaying a castle in a in a ca uh, slaying a castle. Sansa slaying a giant in a castle made of snow appears to be the red herring of the bunch. It's another one of those where the vision was true, but it wasn't w what it seemed to be. She she tore up Robert Aaron's giant doll, giant doll, <laughs> doll of a giant when he made it stomp on her Winterfell snow castle. So even with her perfect record, the dream can mislead. But she herself offers no interpretations or of her own, and nor do the outlaws at the time. It's for the readers, and this is an important point. Yeah, the Ghost of High Heart's dreams have had a large impact in the past, and they're even still playing out right now, thanks to Rhaegar and company. It was her dream of the prince that was promised that inspired several bold and bizarre actions by House Targaryen, leading to Summerhall. But if she doesn't interpret her dreams for the Brotherhood Without Banners, does that mean she didn't do so back before Summerhall either? Probably not, but maybe that was what taught her not to, <laughs> you know, like, don't do that anymore. Look what happens. Maybe someone else heard of ghost dreams and, you know, <sighs> go all Melisandre on everyone's yeah. ass, <laughs> interpreting it the wrong way, you know? Aww. So how about that? Really, think about that. The real tragedy, it could be rooted in another attempt of someone seeing what they wanted to see in a prophetic dream, like an attempt to figure out a prophetic dream gone wrong. In this mm -hmm. case... It wasn't even their dream. This would be Rhaegar <laughs> interpreting the Ghost of High Heart's dreams. <laughs> uh, and so much that he did, perhaps all that he did, was based on bad dream reading. That <laughs> might be really what it boils down to. How about that? Don't dream, don't read dreams alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get a helper. But you might say, oh, well, maybe the best thing is just don't deal with those dreams at all. Just ignore them. They can only, you know, trying to interpret them can only make things worse. But it's a double-edged sword that way. <laughs> you can't ignore these dreams. The Ghost yeah. of High Heart was right every time with that one red herring only. Yeah, so what do you do? Sure, getting a prophecy wrong can be disastrous, but ignoring it could be just as bad or worse. And we've got the best possible example of this as we turn to mm. 
Dragon Dreams. You guys might already know what I'm about to talk about, mm. but Aenar Targaryen's maiden daughter, Daenys the Dreamer, saw the Doom of Valyria about a dozen years before it happened. It's the entire reason why the Targaryens are in Westeros now, and why they survived the event that ended the Valyrian Freehold. They listened to what she told him, told them of her dreams, probably because she had built up a reputation for accuracy. We can guess that Daenys was not the first Targaryen with dreams that told the future, and she was certainly not the last. Surely there are many undocumented others, so this can't be considered a complete list. And it makes it a little difficult to figure out how often it runs in the family, so to speak. Literally. (laughs) From what we can tell, there are two types of dragon dreamers. Ones who have a wide range of dreams about future events, and those who, more simply, dream of dragons a lot. A lot. A lot. (laughs) Especially the return of dragons. We don't really hear about these dreams before they died out, but it's not necessarily something we would know about. Yeah, Danny's dream of the doom was of the doom. It wasn't of dragons. (laughs) She may have had those dreams as well. (laughs) But her descendant, Daenerys, starts off the series with an early dragon dream we get to see firsthand. (laughs) Daenerys 2, A Game of Thrones. There are no more dragons, Danny thought, staring at her brother, though she did not dare say it aloud. Yet that night, she dreamt of one. Viserys was hitting her, hurting her. She was naked, clumsy with fear. She ran from him, but her body seemed thick and ungainly. He struck her again. She stumbled and fell. You woke the dragon, he screamed as he kicked her. You woke the dragon! You woke the dragon! Her thighs were slick with blood. She closed her eyes and whimpered. As if in answer, there was a hideous ripping sound and the crackling of some great fire. When she looked again, Viserys was gone. Great columns of flame rose all around, and in the midst of them was the dragon. It turned its great head slowly. When its molten eyes found hers, she woke, shaking, and covered with a fine sheen of sweat. Daenerys has multiple dreams prior to becoming the mother of dragons, centering around Drogon herself, himself, and scenes that resemble the pyre where he and his siblings hatch. This dream that we just read, or well, I didn't read that. <laughs> <laughs> this dream comes as she is beginning to lose herself among the Dothraki. She is exhausted and beaten down by the nomadic lifestyle and her husband's extreme roughness in bed. That's probably putting it mildly. And there's no bed. (laughs) Daenerys 3, A Game of Thrones. Yet when she slept that night, she dreamt the dragon dream again. Viserys was not in it this time. There was only her and the dragon. Its scales were black as night, wet and slick with blood. Her blood, Danny sensed. Its eyes were pools of molten magma, and when it opened its mouth, the flame came roaring out in a hot jet. She could hear it singing to her. She opened her arms to the fire, embraced it, let it swallow her whole, let it cleanse her, and temper her, and scour her clean. She could feel her flesh sear and blacken and slough away, could feel her blood boil and turn to steam. And yet there was no pain. She felt strong and new and fierce. Not only does this dream renew her strength, it helps explain how she knew to jump in the pyre later on. Interestingly, after becoming the mother of dragons, she no longer dreams of dragons. 
There's nothing at all like a wolf dream where she sees through Drogon's eyes, nor any suggestion of that from past dragon riders. Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a space, an, un, an unexplored space of, of these dragon dreamers. It's like what was going on with the dragon dreamers, you know, hundreds of years ago mm-hmm. or while they weren't around. It's eh, We'll have to come back to that when we yeah. get more info. Yeah, I know George has been asked about the connection that uh, Daenerys and other dragon riders have with dragons and if they could see, and he, mm. of course... Yeah, he kind of... <laughs> He sidesteps those. Yeah, he kind <laughs> of, it was kind of like a no, but it wasn't a complete yeah, no. Yeah, it wasn't a complete answer. Yeah, I think maybe he's still figuring a few of those finer <laughs> points out. Anyway, there are some elements to the relationship that almost have to be magical. Yeah. You know, even if it's not, even if we're not going to see dragon dreams like wolf dreams, mm-hmm. there's something going on there. Yeah. And we'll see a lot more of it in the Winds of Winter and Beyond, I would assume. Daenerys is just, like just getting to that point. So we'll wait for that and we'll stay on her dreams for now, where she, again, is a special case. <laughs> she has dreams with origins and natures of all kinds and they kind of mm-hmm. mix together. No matter the source, Danny has prophetic dreams, whether they're dragon dreams or some other name. <laughs> But yeah. there's just, the, the point is, there's no more bloody dragon. She's not dreaming of Drogon anymore. <laughs> and that's a relief, because those dreams were intense. She escaped that cycle, only to find herself in another. She's dreaming of various things instead, while riding her dragon. Instead <laughs> of being faced with it, and the flames, and all that. Yeah. So, the most important of these is when she dreams of herself melting an army of ice at the trident. Well, I wonder what that refers <laughs> to. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> many other Targaryens dreamt of dragons, as we mentioned, and many of our examples are from those who lived in the era when the Targaryens had no more dragons. And we're not saying that all these others had dreams like Danny's, but even a lesser version of this might make one a little crazy. Yeah, this also shows us that dragon dreams are not tied to dragons themselves, meaning you don't have to have a dragon of your own to have dragon dreams, because obviously <laughs> when there were no dragons around, <laughs> then there were still dragon dreams. So, <laughs> Samuel three. A feast for crows. The last dragon died before you were born, said Sam. How could you remember them? I see them in my dreams, Sam. I see a red bleeding star in the sky. I still remember red. I see their shadows on the snow. Hear the crack of leather and wings. Feel their hot breath. My brothers dreamed of dragons too. And the dreams killed them, every one. His brothers were Daron the Drunkard, Arian Brightflame, and Egg, a.k.a. Aegon V, the Unlikely, all of whom we see in the Hedge Knight. Yeah, Daron reminded us of Jojen when he said this. From the Hedge Knight. My dreams are not like yours, Sir Duncan. Mine are true. The innkeep leaned close. Never you mind that one, Sarah. All he does is drink and talk about his dreams. So... He drinks and he dreams things. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Possibly would have been a drunk anyway, but the implication seems to be that the dreams have broken his spirit somewhat, or entirely. A lot like Jojen. They frighten me. You frighten me. I dreamed of you and a dead dragon, you see. A great beast, huge, with wings so large they could cover this meadow. It had fallen on top of you, but you were alive, and the dragon was dead. The dead dragon with Sir Duncan turned out to be Prince Baylor Breakspear, Darren the Drunkard's uncle, heir to the throne, and hand of the king. So, no wonder he was such a large dragon with big wings. <laughs> the dream proved true. <laughs> yeah, the next brother, Arian, well, 
He's the one that drunkenly chugged wildfire, thinking it would transform him into a dragon. Who knows what dreams may have been involved in that notion. I'm not sure that alcohol alone is enough to explain such a plan. Though insanity <laughs> might. Yeah. <laughs> and that said, Egg himself may have been even crazier by the time he set up the events that led to the tragedy of Summerhall, which we spent two episodes on. <laughs> Egg on the fifth put a lot of effort into trying to bring back the dragons. Yeah, so really it seems that Eamon wasn't exaggerating. His brothers really did all dream of dragons, and it really did kill them all, in a manner of speaking. And Eamon himself describes his own dreams of dragons, though he seemed to have things more under control than his brothers. Either they were less intense for him, or he learned to deal with it. Or maybe both. Mm -hmm. Still, his dreams are intense and vaguely similar to Danny's. Maybe his stopped when Danny's stopped after the dragons were born. Or maybe the lack of dragons in the world had an impact on the type of dreams Targaryens have. Maybe mm -hmm. just before they were born, Aemon had some extra special dreams. Meaning yeah. Danny's dragons, which is <laughs> before they were born. Yeah. yeah. We don't hear about dragon dreams or obsession with dragons much after Summerhall. Jaehaerys and Sarah ruled next, and we hear nothing about that from them at all. Ares the Mad King, of course, he fooled around with his eggs, but he also clearly wasn't obsessed with them. Wildfire was his jam. And his jelly. <laughs> Apart from the obvious, in Danny, her brother Rhaegar may be an exception. He was certainly interested in the prophecy of the prince that was promised, and there are dragons involved in that, so that's related. But we don't hear of him having dreams of the future, or of dragons specifically. But he did believe in the return of the dragons, like some of his ancestors, whether or he dreamed of it or not. Huh? Some of them did, for sure. We just don't know if he was one of them. Yeah. And he was not the first Targaryen to be highly interested in prophecy, either. Mm-mm. However, if he didn't dream of dragons, what did Rhaegar dream of? His harp. His harp. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the common thread here, as things look now, is the blood of old Valyria running in the veins of these dreamers. And it extends to some non-Targaryens as well. We don't have any examples from House Valyrian or House Celtigar, but we do have a Baratheon. Prologue. A clash of kings. I had bad dreams. Shireen told him. About the dragons. They were coming to eat me. The child had been plagued by nightmares as far back as Maester Crescent could recall. Maester Crescent chalks this up to the stone dragons all around Dragonstone. The shapes mm -hmm. and things giving her nightmares. You know, a maesterly explanation. <laughs> but it could be foreshadowing rooted in magic. Meaning... Her Targaryen blood. Yeah. The blood of the dragon appears in a few other places. Surprising ones like Brown Ben Plum, for example, but we hear nothing about his dreams. But we do have examples of some who do. Also like Ben, this one is a surprise. Ariane won the winds of winter. It was then that pasty, pudgy Teora raised her eyes from the cream cakes on her plate. It is dragons. Dragons? Said her mother. Tiora, don't be mad. I'm not. They're coming. How could you possibly know that? Her sister asked. One of your little dreams? Teora gave a tiny nod, chin trembling. They were dancing. In my dream. And everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. That was Tiora Tolland of Ghost Hill. House Tolland is sworn to House Martell directly, and it's pretty common for houses with this close of a connection to marry. Varys' blood of the dragon in the current Martell line, thanks to Prince Marin marrying Daenerys I back in 187. So there's probably an unmentioned Lord Tolland or Lady Martell marriage in the recent past. 
Yeah, uh, there are other people with Blood of the Dragon out there. We can't know them all. During the Dance of the Dragons, a lot of different people tried to ride dragons based on thinking that they may have had a drop of dragon blood, too. Mm -hmm. It didn't work very often. Although a lot of that was because they didn't actually have the dragon blood. <laughs> but the ones that it did work on, we don't know anything about their dreams. <laughs> unfortunately. So you think if I, like, drew some blood from a dragon... <laughs> work, a drop of dragon blood. It might, me. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to try. We'll, 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 we'll try it out in the real world. And we'll report back later. It's like covering yourself in deer urine or blood <laughs> or something, uh, something like that. Yeah. But back to the point. I, I think that T.R. Tallinn shows us that a trace of dragon blood can still carry a lot of power. Hidden ancestry can conceal quite a lot. Didn't work for Quentin Martell though, did it? <laughs> He's really a punching bag example. I love to mention how it didn't work for Quentin. His personal sigil should be a dead horse beating it. Just... As an aside, note that Tiora is also a very unhappy person, deeply affected by her dreams and how she's treated by her family for having them. She's very melancholy. Yeah, like, like Jojen. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, very like that. Uh, but like all these patterns, there are exceptions. Enter Damon the second Blackfire, the Melisandre of dreamers. <laughs> He was a happy and positive guy, even at the end, because he saw great things for himself in his own dreams. He, yeah. he truly had the talent. <laughs> the Mystery Knight. There have always been Targaryens who dreamed of things to come, since long before the conquest, Blood Raven said. So we should not be surprised if from time to time, a black fire displays the gift as well. But he had... None of Jojen's wisdom. His confidence made him stronger and more men followed him because of it. That's how that tends to work. In the end, the dragon hatching he dreamt of was just Egg revealing his secret identity. <laughs> Underwhelming. Yeah. Uh, Damon did at least get one thing right. He dreamed that Sarah Duncan would wear a white cloak with the Kingsguard one day. But that was for Egg as well. <laughs> he was Lord Commander of Tua Targaryen, not a Blackfire. Yeah, sorry, Damon. <laughs> Tyrion too, the Game of Thrones. I seldom ever dream of dragons anymore. There are no dragons. And here comes our controversial dragon dreamer. One day we'll probably learn the truth, and the Tyrion Targaryen theory will forever be enshrined either as a famous red herring or a huge reveal. <laughs> We're not going to weigh in on a theory in this episode, just a reminder that it's possible, and we're interested in the fact that Tyrion has had quite a few dreams of dragons. Young Tyrion wanted a dragon, and he dreamed of having one. But it really sounds more like a child dreaming of what he wanted, not like yeah. a prophetic thing. It does, it's nothing like Danny's dreams. It's nothing like yeah. John's dreams. He tells John that he seldom dreams of dragons anymore, which means that they are still happening. Hmm. Seldom doesn't mean never. Yeah. They're not childhood dreams anymore, I don't think. I mean, he's not a child anymore. So Tyrion's more recent dreams are worth a look. Tyrion too, A Dance with the Dragons. I dreamed about the queen, he said. I was on my knees before her, swearing my allegiance, but she mistook me for my brother Jamie and fed me to her dragons. Let us hope this dream was not prophetic. You are a clever imp, just as Varys said, and Daenerys will have need of clever men about her. I recall posting in the Westeros.org forums about 10, maybe more years ago that this exact thing would happen, but with a big twist. Danny will want to feed Tyrion to her dragons, but they won't eat him. Instead, <laughs> they'll like him like Brown Ben Plum. <laughs> it's even Tyrion himself who guesses that Ben 
was liked by the dragons. He was like, yeah. I bet they liked you, and I'll tell yeah. you why. Yeah. So, the dragon talk in Tyrion's early chapters could easily just be foreshadowing for all of the dragony business that he's getting involved in. But if Tyrion ends up riding a dragon, well, are we going to look back on these childhood dreams and say, that's actually foreshadowing. Those are magical dreams. Yeah. Now that he's with the dragon, maybe that all looks magical in retrospect. Huh? Especially the one with Illyrio and the other ones. Um, if he turns out to be Ares' son, then people will be able to say, well, those dreams were because of his dragon blood. Yeah. It's definite maybe. It's a far cry from seeing Daenerys' point of view, where we see the dreams as they occur and we see how intense they are. Tyrion's are mostly described after the fact, though at least they're by him. Yeah, at least he's the one describing them. Uh, and not that Tyrion doesn't get an intense detailed dream or two in there. There's this one, which comes after drinking a lot of fire wine with Illyrio on the road. Fire wine, dream wine, he's... Dragon dreams, fire. <laughs> Tyrion too, a dance with dragons. That night, Tyrion Lannister dreamed of a battle that turned the hills of Westeros as red as blood. He was in the midst of it, dealing death with an axe as big as he was, fighting side by side with Barristan the Bold and Bittersteel, as dragons wheeled across the sky above them. In the dream, he had two heads, both noseless. His father led the enemy, so he slew him once again. Then he killed his brother, Jamie, hacking at his face until it was a red ruin, laughing every time he struck a blow. Only when the fight was finished did he realize that his second head was weeping. So this dream is awesome, but there's nothing in it that Tyrion isn't aware of. Like, all the elements that are in the dream are things that he knows exist. Like, Bittersteel, that's the Golden Company. Mm -hmm. uh, Barristan, he knows is with Danny. He's also mm -hmm. conflicted about going against his own family, though it appears inevitable. Mm -hmm. So I think Tyrion's dreams are regular foreshadowing, not supernatural. But the door is open for a reveal to mm -hmm. retroactively kind of make them look supernatural. In, uh, so, But we'll yeah. have to see. It's a really cool open-ended yes. thing right now. George is doing a good job of walking that fine line. <laughs> John, however, well, he has some curious dreams that might be a result of his Targaryen blood, his connection to ghosts, and some homesickness. Mm. John 7, A Game of Thrones. Last night, he had dreamt the Winterfell dream again. He was wandering the empty castle, searching for his father, descending into the crypts. Only this time the dream had gone further than before. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned, he saw that the vaults were opening, one after the other. As the dead kings came stumbling from their cold black graves, John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. Even when Ghost leapt up on the bed to nuzzle at his face, he could not shake his deep sense of terror. Yeah, John has this recurring dream of where Winterfell is empty. And he goes to the crypts, which is, of course, that's what, where I wouldn't you. You go into your home and it's empty, so yeah, go to the crypts. Yeah, don't you? I would head down to our crypts. <laughs> yeah, the, big, the, the history of Westeros crypts that we have. Many generations of podcasters are buried down there. With headphones across their laps <laughs> and their stone microphones. Now, anyway, so John has this recurring dream where he's going down to the crypts and Winterfell's empty and he's thinking that he doesn't belong. And the dead kings are rising, though. 
That's mm-hmm. new. That's the dream recurs, but the Dead Kings Arising was a new part of it. And that made him extra afraid. Yeah. And wouldn't you know it, the very next day, they find the corpses of Othor and Jafer Flowers, and John fights and burns one of them at the end of that very same chapter. After saving the old bear from the white, he has dreams of fighting a corpse with blue eyes and black hands like it had, but with his father's face. Mm. This is before the execution, so it's more than a bit ominous. And just as minor characters in A Song of Ice and Fire are deeply woven into the story and given great depth, they occasionally have dreams of interest too. John isn't the only Lord Commander with dreams. Tyrion too, A Game of Thrones. You must make them understand. I tell you, my lord, the darkness is coming. There are wild things in the woods. Direwolves and mammoths and snow bears the size of oryx, and I have seen darker shapes in my dreams. Gior Mormont has old blood of the north, so we can't dismiss his dreams as mere nightmares. That's right. Some people think he's got a little bit of skin changing ability with the mm. bird and everything following <laughs> him around. That, that could be related. Infamous corn code. <laughs> John 9, A Storm of Swords. I had a dream that a king had come, Owen said happily. Maester Aemon sent a raven, and King Robert came with all his strength. I dreamed I saw his golden banners. Now that was Owen the Oaf. There's no special blood in him that we know of. And maybe this was just a hopeful dream that came true. He's hoping the king will come save us. Mm-hmm. And that's what his dream was. And it tur- But it turned out to be true, kind mm-hmm. of. It was Stannis, not Robert. Yeah, it's close enough as far as dreams go. Well, it might have been foreshadowing. We don't mm-hmm. know. That's another ex- uh, ambiguous one there. Victarion has dark and disturbing dreams while on the island of Velos, which was long ago devastated by tidal waves that came in the wake of the doom of Valyria. But these dreams seem to be nothing other than extension of Victarion's unease at being in a foreign land. It's a sentiment he expresses often. But it could portend his own doom, which Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us expect. Ah, (laughs) Victarion making it to the end? I'm not so sure about that. I don't think so. Um, but the point here, again, is even with Victorian, um, you know, he's a POV character, but I wouldn't call him a central character. Even his dreams are, you can't exactly tell what's going on. There's uncertain chronology, there's uncertain meaning, there's uncertain origin, Mm -hmm. which is leading us to our final part of this episode, which we're calling Dreams Out of Time. (laughs) Part four. There are dreams that don't fit into a single category, perhaps because they show past and future, or because they seem to have an overly ambiguous origin, or maybe because two different forms of magic are in play. Like Melisandre. (laughs) Or magic in the mundane at the same time. Like Melisandre. (laughs) Theon's dreams are a candidate, but we don't even know that the bed is werewood and if there's a supernatural influence. Other than that, we don't know what it is. So we left that one in the guilty dreams section to keep it simple. And some of these don't really fit neatly into our chronology categories, like shade dreams. We discussed dreams brought on by Shade of the Evening quite a lot in our episode on The Forsaken, though, so we don't want to rehash most of that. Check it out. Yeah, just check that one out. But what's difficult about when looking at it from this angle is that there's so much else going on for the people who we see drink it. Euron drinks a lot of it, but we aren't really privy to his dreams, as we said. No. Danny, when she drinks it, there's a lot happening that <laughs> isn't just the shade, and with with uh, Aaron, it's the same thing. Yeah. So, Euron claims that he had flying dreams as a boy, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that in our episode on him. Yeah, well, that's a, a lot more on yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, His brother Aaron's are nightmarish in a 
bit prophetic, but also very much a product of his own deepest, darkest fears. Daenerys is being manipulated by the warlocks. They're trying to set her up. So it's really hard to say what was shade and what was warlock meddling. Yeah. Intended right there. Shade. (laughs) They were throwing shade after drinking shade. (laughs) Despite all that, undoubtedly, she was seeing future, present, and past events in that scene. Yeah. But in any case, she wasn't dreaming. She was awake. And Aaron was not... So that makes differences hard to ascertain there. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of get at it when there's so many different circumstances, even though the this, this central mm-hmm. thing is shade of the evening. And it doesn't fit into our dream prophecy vision category split all that well either because of that. Yeah. So because, well, if it works one way while you're asleep and a different way while you're awake, mm-hmm. well, yeah. <laughs> the bottom line with shade of the evening is that if you see it pop up again somewhere, you're going to have a decent idea of what's coming and no idea whatsoever. <laughs> It's been used to give visions to other people, which is something we have other examples of, which is where we're going now. Let's let Archmaester Marwyn the Mage explain glass candle dreams. Samwell Five, A Feast for Crows. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas, and deserts with one of these glass candles. They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions and speak to one another half a world apart. Seated before their candles. Do you think that might be useful, Slayer? The root of glass candles seems to be fire magic. We've discussed the similarities in reading flames to reading frozen flames. And since obsidian is frozen fire, and that's what glass candles are made of, obsidian, well, all that could be a way to say that these could be called fire dreams. It's it's fire magic. That wouldn't be confusing at all. (laughs) This is both complicated and not. The role of glass candles in the future of A Song of Ice and Fire is full of potential, but they could also end up being fairly minor. Mm. That said, there's no doubt that Danny has had glass candle dreams sent by Quaith. It was long suspected prior to Feast, and then it was essentially explained here by Marwyn. Now, this is complicated for a couple of reasons. Just like Shade of the Evening, there's glass candle dreams that are sent to a waking person. Uh, well, just Danny in this case. Well, that we know of. <laughs> it's also complicated because Quaith is sending prophecies of the future nested in dreams of the present. So she just has, Danny has these dreams of Quaith telling her things about the future. It's, it's like warning, real-time warnings during a dream. Hmm. But it's about things that are coming in the future. So I, that's why we put this in the ambiguous section. <laughs> Out of time dream because there's elements of yeah. both going on. Yeah, it's dreamception for sure. And this is on top of Danny already having, like we said, so many other kinds of magical dreams. The ones that she doesn't have definitely are the tree dreams. Yeah, the Werewood Network. It's vast and largely unexplained at this point. It probably always will be. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll learn more, but there'll be just as much we don't know, if not more. What we do know is that there's many aspects of the old gods, the werewoods, the children, the green seers that involve dreams. And in a parallel to the glass candles, they in- involve influencing other people's dreams. Mm. Entering someone's head while they're asleep and giving them thoughts, dreams, visions, yeah. etc. Before Quaith and Danny, we had the first dream in the entire series, which was Bran in his coma. Instead of frozen fire, we had the three-eyed blood raven. Mm. You know, it was just kind of regular frozen <laughs> mm-hmm. though we didn't know it at the time that it was blood raven we just thought it was this crow <laughs> and at the time he only had two eyes he wasn't even a three-eyed crow yet so mm-hmm. brand's third chapter begins with this very long dream about learning to fly and other things 
And interestingly, when Bran starts to dream of his fall, the traumatic part, the crow tells him to put it aside, to forget about it, as if you could do that. But a fear of falling is not conducive to learning to fly, after all, so there's some straight-up logical reason. It's not just this metaphorical dream world here. Bran then looks down and sees Winterfell. He sees Hodor doing chores. He sees the heart tree and the godswood looking back at him knowingly. He then sees his family in the near present. Santa crying over Lady. His father pleading with King Robert about Lady. His mother on a ship with Sir Roderick getting seasick. He also sees the Hound and Jamie Lannister and the Mountain. Bran Three, A Game of Thrones. Over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. That means he's seeing the future as well as the present. Gregor's blood turns black after he's poisoned by the Red Viper. That's Magicor Venom from the east, where Bran's dream goes next. He lifted his eyes and saw clear across the narrow sea to the free cities and the green Dothraki Sea and beyond to vase Dothrak under its mountain to the fabled lands of the Jade Sea to a shy by the shadow where dragons stirred beneath the sunrise. Finally, he looked north. He saw the walls shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. And he looked past the wall, past endless forests cloaked in snow, past the frozen shore and the great blue-white rivers of ice, and the dead plains where nothing grew or lived. North and north and north he looked, to the curtain of light at the end of the world, and then beyond that curtain. He looked deep into the heart of winter, and then he cried out, afraid, and the heat of his tears burned on his cheeks. Now you know, the crow whispered as it sat on his shoulder. Now you know why you must live. Why? Bran said, not understanding, falling, falling. Because winter is coming. And there it is. The warning that is also his house's words. The dream doesn't end here, though. Bran looked at the crow on his shoulder, and the crow looked back. It had three eyes, and the third eye was full of a terrible knowledge. Bran looked down. There was nothing below him now but snow and cold and death. A frozen wasteland where jagged blue-white spires of ice waited to embrace him. They flew up at him like spears. He saw the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled on their points. Whoa, dreamers impaled upon icy points there, Hmm. upon their points. And the first appearance of that third eye, full of a terrible knowledge, as it says, <laughs> that makes going to sleep a bit scarier. <laughs> this dream has always been intriguing. I mean, who are those other dreamers? Who, what are we seeing here? It's, like I said, it's the first dream we see <laughs> in the entire series, and we don't really have any additional clarity on it. Just like the others introduced really early in the story, and we don't really know that much more about them several books later. They <laughs> remain very mysterious. Are we seeing the realm of the others? Here in this dream, is there is the dream version of their realm as dangerous as it seems here? Are we seeing that they have like 
wards against these dreamers, like Blood Raven's Cave yeah. is warded. Maybe yes. this is their version yeah. of like, wards. Uh, yeah, we discussed how the ghost of High Heart may get a boost from all the weirwood stones, and again, how her cave is warded, like this. Uh, and we have an example from a non magical person that might provide additional evidence of this. Jamie's several page dream that precedes his rescue of Brienne could generate hours of discussion by itself, but we're not going to go there. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> there's his Kingsguard vows and brothers, Rhaegar, Brienne, his family, and a descent into the depths that's a bit similar to John heading down into the crypts. John, uh, Jamie going down into the depths of Castle Rock, it's a little bit similar. It's different reasons, but the imagery is similar. But right now, what we want to point to is the werewood stump Jamie rested his head on when having that dream. It may have been the catalyst or a Yeah, or one, of, yeah, or one of several catalysts. Yeah. yeah, We can't disregard the fact that he drank dream wine and he had a fever. That's three different things that cause dreams all mixed together, plus the trauma of losing his hands, uh, his hand, which is his identity, plus the normal fact that you have dreams. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so he was over the shock of it, but he wasn't exactly used to this loss yet. Yeah, Jamie does note that his fever dreams had all been vivid, but this one began his redemption. It's really important. <laughs> we grouped Sansa and Jamie together earlier as people who lost a part of themselves and how it impacted their dreams. They have this in common as well. Dreams making, rather, marking major shifts in their personality. Simply put, Sansa had a coming of age, and Jamie began to care about honor. We can learn from this, perhaps, as we're supposed to do with dreams of the future, after all. I've long wondered how Jamie and Brienne could both survive Lady Stoneheart. Jamie's dreams of the future may mean he actually has one. Brienne's lack of such means she does not. But again, Ned Stark had a dream of snow, and he didn't last. That's true. <laughs> Maybe we should be hoping Brienne has a dream of spring. If we were to look at these dreams as a whole, from a very high level, book to book, and how George used them throughout the books, a few more patterns would emerge, and that's what we're going to wrap this episode up with. The dreams in book one had a lot to do with setting up the story and getting us to know some of these characters. The dreams in book two featured a lot of the foreshadowing, wolf dreams, green dreams. Those were really prominent. Book three saw dreams as a catalyst for redemption, and we saw a few new types. The glass candles were introduced. So that introduced more the concept of dreams being given to other mm -hmm. people, although that wasn't the first time. Books four and five saw a lot of new POVs, and we saw dreams from Cersei and Jaime and these other new characters. Not that they were entirely new, but it was their POVs mm -hmm. were. And we got to see familiar things in terms of dreams, but with different people. You know, how, in other words, we got to see how Cersei was impacted by her old dreams versus how Ned was impacted by his. Now, and how similar they were. Yeah, some, we had us the same lines. That was really uh -huh. neat. But with such a huge topic, it's safe to say others would see things differently than we did. Now, mm -hmm. whether from a high level or at the detail level, that's the nature of dreams. They're just really open to a wide variety of interpretations. Mm -hmm. The ones here and ones in the real world. <laughs> no doubt there are a few dreams we didn't even bring up that you may have wanted us to. Again, that's just a function of there being so many. Hmm. Some of the best in the series were too long to quote here, and this is already the most quotes we've ever had in an episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you want to hear what we have to say with regards to interpreting some of these dreams. So, like we said at the beginning, there will be a Q&A for this. It's becoming our custom to do that with larger topics. We have the Q&As every once in a while, and that seems to be where we like to set hmm. them for things that are not fully covered by the regular episode. So... 
roughly two and a half weeks from the release of this episode. Again, check the description of the video or the podcast episode. We'll have the date included in there as well as a link to the episode. Send us your questions in advance and we may mention your name as we answer the question. For example, you can ask us, are there dreams of the dead? Do the others have white dreams? You know, that's the equivalent of a living human having a A green dream dream or a wolf dream. Right, not a green dream, a wolf wolf dream. dream. Another being. You know, they're dreaming of an animal. In this case, this is dreaming of a dead body. Hmm. They might, right? Yeah, maybe. Thanks to all the people that helped make this episode possible. Rainey's Targaryen, Queen of Timelines, was very helpful as usual. Thanks to McCall Schick of Vassals of Kingsgrave for doing all the female voices for this episode. Fantastic job. Also, thanks to Martin Lewis, a.k.a. The Reader. You can find him on Echoes of Ice and Fire on Facebook. He did the male voices for this one as well. We're going to have Martin do voices semi-regularly. The response has been great, and we think he's great too. Thanks to our History of Westeros bards, Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal, for the intro music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld of Claradox.de for the maps you can see in the background if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, These are some new maps. The one, the big Essos map there on the right is a replacement, a a bigger version of the one we had before, and we got it signed by George R. R. Martin recently. How cool is that? Thanks to Ashea for the video editing. Thanks to Yoke Boy for the audio editing. And thanks, of course, to all our Patreon supporters, especially those who voted for this episode and waited so long for us to make it. I promise it won't take so long next time. Our peers of the realm include the mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim, the fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville, the Cunning, is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Sea Lord Grayson Aurelius of Bravos, Blood of the Titan, Sentinel of the Narrow Sea, and Grand Cardinal of the Temple of Yogg-Sothoth has been busy lately. He recently captured a Lysine galley filled with wildling slaves taken from north of the Wall. After having the slavers sacrificed to Yogg-Sothoth, he learned from the wildlings about the burgeoning king beyond the Wall, Rowan Cantrell. He sent an envoy from the Temple of the Gate, the Key, and the Guardian to discuss supplying his growing army with food and weapons from Bravos in exchange for future considerations. King beyond the Wall, Rowan Cantrell, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, has been said to have taken a bride recently. We await further news on that front. The History of Westeros Small Council is comprised of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws, Lord James Tuttle, Master of Ships. Also thanks to Lady Diarlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North's Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Ashland Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and Holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods has the motto, Our Roots Run Deep. 
Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Runes, sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithomancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz, and Lord Imriel of House Jordan. Also thanks to King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. The rest of our Kingsguard is Sir Andrew, the Dragonseed Prophet, longest tenured White Sword, Sir Dolorous D, Sir Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums, Elia of New York, Lady Ola, the Amber Knight, and Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. The History of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, First Builder Lyanna Kelly, the Lady of Steelhold, and First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back soon with another one. Thanks for listening, and Valar Morgulis.